Welcome to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and be sure to join our group on Facebook. Now relax and enjoy the show. Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay and luster cream shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair bring you Our Miss Brooks starring Eve Arden. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks, written by Al Lewis. Well, the holiday season is practically with us. To Our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, it means more than just a respite from the rigors of a difficult school term. Yes, it means that I'll get a chance to relax and observe the change that takes place in people as Christmas approaches. It's almost visible, the spirit of camaraderie and warm good fellowship which flows between us like a bountiful stream. I only hope that this season, our beloved principal, Mr. Osgood Conklin, will get a little on him. <laughs> I was talking about his temper to my landlady last Friday morning at breakfast. I can't understand it, Mrs. Davis. Everything I do lately seems to rub Mr. Conklin the wrong way. What do you mean, Connie? Well, take yesterday, for instance. I was in his office when I saw his lighted cigar lying on the rug unnoticed. Naturally, I stooped over and picked it up. Wouldn't you? Well... I gave up smoking a long time ago. <laughs> but, uh, I didn't want the office to catch on fire, Mrs. Davis, so I merely put the cigar in an ashtray. You might not believe this, but he was furious. Because you put his cigar back in the ashtray? Well, it wasn't exactly an ashtray. I guess I should have noticed it was an inkwell. <laughs> oh, and when you put his cigar in the inkwell, it went out? That isn't the end I put in the inkwell. <laughs> Three puffs later, Mr. Conklin could have won first prize in the chow dog contest. <laughs> He's so unreasonable. You'd think having a blue tongue was a crime. Maybe it was the taste of the ink he objected to. He's always been a finicky eater anyway. But forget about Mr. Conklin, Connie. Just stay out of his way as much as possible. Believe me, I'll do my best, Mrs. Davis. Say, that's quite a batch of mail you've got there. Is it all for you? Mail? Oh, this isn't incoming mail, Connie. These are the letters I picked up from all the kids in the neighborhood. You see, um, Bush's department store has a contest each year in which the child who writes the best letter to Santa Claus gets his choice of anything in the toy department. Oh, and you're Santa's helper. Mm -hmm. Well, I shop there anyway, so I just drop them off to the kids. They write such cute letters, some of them. Reminds me of the one you wrote to Santa when you were seven years old. Me? Where did you see that, Mrs. Davis? Forgive me, Connie, but I've got it right here. I took it out of your old album. You know, the scrapbook with the souvenirs in it. You had it out last night. Remember? Oh, that's right. I thought I might run across some souvenir money in it. <laughs> Let's see the letter, Mrs. Davis. There you are, dear. Read it out loud. I get such a kick out of it. All right. It says, Dear Sandy Claus, look at this spelling, S-A-N-D-Y-C-L-A-W-S-S-S. <laughs> That's nice, one S for each claw. Read on, dear. I don't want you to bring me very much toys at all, because then you would not have enough for all the other little children. Wasn't I a doll? <laughs> 
please, Sandy, just bring me a slate with some chalk and a eraser and some crayons and a ruler on account because when I grow up, I want to be a English teacher. Signed, Connie Brooks, age seven. <laughs> Isn't that touching, Mrs. Davis? Even at that tender age, I was already planning my future poverty. <laughs> you knew what you wanted, all right. Now, I'll just set these letters on the sideboard and pour us some coffee. Here's your cup, Connie. Thanks, Mrs. Davis. I'd better hurry. Walter Denton is picking me up this morning. Can we give you a lift? No, thank you. I'm going over to Bush's department store. They have a contest each year in which a child who writes the best letter to Santa Claus gets a... Um, His choice um, of anything in the toy department? How did you know, Connie? You just finished telling me, Mrs. Davis. <laughs> oh, so I did. Now, where in the world did I put those letters? What have you done to your car, Walter? Seems to have quite an air about it this morning. It's nothing but your own aromatic presence, Miss Brooks. <laughs> well, thanks, Walter, but I'm not what I mean. Wait a minute, here's a cigar on the seat between us. Oh, probably dropped out of my dad's pocket. I drove him to work this morning. Say, do you mind if I keep it? It might make a nice good morning gesture to Mr. Conklin. I can use one at this point. Oh, sure. My dad's got a pocket full of cigars. But what's wrong with you and old Marblehead? Ew, Mr. Conklin. <laughs> Are you in the doghouse, Miss Brooks? Where I am shouldn't happen to a dog, Walter. <laughs> but maybe this little peace offering will help. Smells awfully sweet for a cigar. Oh, it isn't the cigar that has that sweet smell, Miss Brooks. That's Miss Enright. Where is she sitting? In the glove compartment? <laughs> no, I just dropped her off at the beauty parlor. She was wearing a new perfume. She said it was called Voodoo. Kind of clings to the upholstery, doesn't it? <laughs> just like Miss Enright. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Walter. I shouldn't speak that way about another member of the faculty. Forget I said anything. Oh, sure. I know there's no love lost between you two. Although, Miss Enright did pay you a rather nice compliment this morning. You did? Yes, ma'am. She said she thought it was wonderful how you taught the subject of English. Miss Enright said that? Just before she went into the beauty parlor. She said that anybody who could teach a language to so many kids for such a long time, in spite of her obvious difficulty in speaking that language, should get a medal. <laughs> Maybe the dryer will fall on her. <laughs> By the way, Walter, did Miss Enright mention her reason for going to the beauty parlor so early in the morning? Oh, come to think of it, she did. She said she was going out with Mr. Boynton after school. But today's Friday, the day Mr. Boynton usually takes me to the zoo. Well, it's also a special occasion for Miss Enright. It's her birthday. And you know something, Miss Brooks? She came right out and told me her age. How old did she say she was, Walter? Twenty-seven. I guess that's why Mr. Boynton has to take her out today instead of you. I still don't see what Miss Enright's birthday has to do with it. He didn't take her out last year when she was 27. <laughs> or the year before when she was 28. Ah, uh, 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 Miss Brooks, I seem to detect the presence of the green-eyed monster in this vehicle. She can't possibly be back from the beauty parlor yet. <laughs> just makes me mad, Walter, the way some women try to keep their ages hidden. Why, if anybody wanted to make it their business, they could find out my age in a minute. How 
old are you, Miss Brooks? None of your business. <laughs> Mr. Conklin going into his office, Miss Brooks. Now's your chance to slip in that cigar. Right, Walter. See you in class. <laughs> Good morning, Mr. Conklin. Good morning, Miss Brooks. Have a cigar? A cigar? Yes, sir. I just happen to have it on me. That is, <laughs> a gentleman friend left it in my compact. Uh, here. <laughs> it's brand new. No ink on it. <laughs> Thanks, Miss Brooks. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'll withdraw to the safety of my office while I'm still ahead. Yes. <laughs> Goodbye, Mr. Conklin. Goodbye. Good morning, Miss Brooks. Hello, Miss Enright. Walter Denton tells me that today's your birthday. Why, yes, darling, it is. Happy birthday. <laughs> well, I shall bask in the warmth of that greeting all day. Well, I'm sorry, Miss Enright, but I don't think it's fair of you to make Mr. Boynton break a date with me just because it's your birthday. Oh, I didn't make him do anything, Miss Brooks. It's obviously a matter of preference. Put down a brightly colored gay silk scarf and an old gray shoe, and even a baby will reach for the scarf. Are you calling me an old gray shoe? <laughs> well, if it fits, darling, slip it on. <laughs> now, look, Miss Enright, I don't want to be rude to you on this of all days, especially since I realize that your birthday is one holiday which has been celebrated in this neighborhood for countless generations. <laughs> But every Friday, Mr. Boynton takes me to the zoo. That's very cooperative, my dear. But if the zoo wants you badly enough, they'll come and get you. <laughs> now, you really must excuse me. I've got to find Walter Denton's car. I left a cigar in the front seat this morning. Oh, is that your cigar? I thought you smoked the pipe. <laughs> It's for Mr. Boynton. He's just a big, overgrown boy when it comes to practical jokes, you know, so I bought that cigar for him in the magic shop. In the magic shop? Yes. It's an exploding cigar. <laughs> Not dangerous, of course, just full of soot. Oh, no. Excuse me, Miss Enright, but I've got to get back to Mr. Conklin's office right away. Mr. Conklin, about that cigar I gave you, sir... Yes, Miss Brooks? Oh, God! <laughs> Mr. Conklin, are you all right? Why, yes. Yes, Miss <laughs> I'm just dandy. <laughs> but this soot all over my face. What do you suggest I do about that? Well, what can you do, Mr. Conklin? Get down on one knee and sing April Showers. <laughs> Brooks, starring Eve Arden, will continue in just a moment, but first, here is Vern Smith. Now, proof that brushing teeth right after eating with Colgate Dental Cream helps stop tooth decay before it starts. Continuous research, hundreds of case histories, makes this the most conclusive proof in all dentifrice research on tooth decay. Eminent dental authorities supervised hundreds of college men and women for over two years. One group always brushed their teeth with Colgate right after eating. The other followed their usual dental care. The group using Colgate Dental Cream as directed, using Colgate's exclusively, showed a startling reduction in average number of cavities, far less tooth decay. The other group developed new cavities at a much higher rate. 
No other dentifrice offers proof of these results. Modern research shows decay is caused by mouth acids, which are at their worst right after eating. Brushing teeth with Colgate's as directed helps remove acids before they harm enamel. Yes, Colgate's contains all the necessary ingredients, including an exclusive patented ingredient for effective daily dental care. So remember, always use Colgate dental cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. Well, I finally convinced Mr. Conklin that the cigar episode should be included in my list of unpremeditated crimes. Then when lunch period dragged itself around, I hastened to the cafeteria to see if Miss Enright was with Mr. Boynton. She wasn't, so in four seconds flat, I was. <laughs> I waited all during lunch for him to break our date for that afternoon, but he remained strangely silent. So while we were drinking our coffee, I summoned all my feminine wiles and subtly remarked, is I is or is I ain't your baby? <laughs> what did you say, Miss Brooks? Nothing, Mr. Boynton. Here's a napkin. It's just that I get a distinct feeling of guilt emanating from your side of the table. Uh, guilt? What makes you say that? You paid for my coffee. Oh. <laughs> it's all right. You can pay for mine next time. I paid for yours last time. We're even. <laughs> But today is Friday, Mr. Boynton. Is that right? That's right. And we usually go to the zoo on Friday. Isn't that so? Well, yes, that's so. Well? Well, what? Is I is or is I ain't your baby? <laughs> if you mean am I keeping our engagement, Miss Brooks, well, a, a funny thing happened this morning. On your way to the rabbit's cage? <laughs> yes. As a matter of fact, I was in my lab when it happened. I remembered an appointment I made for this afternoon with somebody else. Namely? My, uh, uh my grandmother. Uh, that's it. My, my grandmother came into town unexpectedly this morning, and I promised to take her out for the day. She's, uh, she's rather helpless, you see, because, well, she's quite far along in years. You're not just clacking your crockery, Doc. <laughs> happens, Mr. Boynton, that I know your grandmother. You, you do? Yes, she's 27 years old, and she teaches English at Madison High School. Miss Brooks, I've decided that rather than stoop to deception, I'd better be honest about this thing. <laughs> what I told you just now about my grandmother, it isn't true. No. I made a date with Miss Enright for today, but only because it's her birthday, Miss Brooks. She told me her folks were living in another part of the country, and... My folks live in another part of the country. Well, Miss Enright also said she didn't have too many friends. I don't have too many friends. But Miss Enright is 27 years old today. My folks live in another part of the country. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, Miss Brooks. I just didn't want your feelings to be hurt. Don't worry about my feelings, Mr. Boynton. I've sent away for a plastic set. Hi, Miss Brooks, Mr. Boynton Hello, Harriet oh, How are you, Harriet? Would you care to sit down? There's plenty of room at this table Oh, thanks, just the same, Mr. Boynton But I've got to take this container of coffee to Daddy Oh, is your father lunching in his office, Harriet? Yes He says he's too embarrassed to eat in public today There seems to be something on his neck he can't get off The Board of Education? <laughs> it's some black stuff 
He didn't want to talk about it too much. Here, Harriet, let me take that coffee down to him. Oh, it's I... the least I can do. You sit here and chat with Mr. Boynton, dear. He's very good company today, loaded with stories. <laughs> well, all right, Miss Brooks, if you say so. Here's the coffee, and here's some extra sugar. Daddy likes it plenty sweet. Thanks, Harriet. I'll, uh, I'll see you later, won't I, Miss Brooks? As we both get older, you mean? <laughs> Please drop into my lab after school. Maybe we can work something out. Perhaps we can all have a date together. Fine. I'll bring my grandfather for Miss Enright. Come in. Uh, I met your daughter in the cafeteria, Mr. Conklin, and she gave me this coffee to bring you. What happened to her? Pulled up lame? <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, sir, I wanted to sort of atone for some of my earlier transgressions. Well, don't stand there. Pour some coffee in a cup for me, please. Yes, sir. I'll just get this cover off. It's on pretty tight. Well, uh, I hope it's hot. If there's anything I can't stand, it's cool coffee. Oh, I'm sure it's piping hot, Mr. Conklin. I can tell by the way the container feels. It's so... Let me let me help you. Let me help. No, it's coming now. I... Oh! <laughs> It is piping hot. Isn't it? <laughs> Observe the steam rising from my trousers where you stand. <laughs> Miss Brooks, yesterday you dipped my cigar in the inkwell. This morning you gave me one that exploded in my face. And now, thanks to you again, a container of hot coffee is running down my leg. <laughs> Stand there, Miss Brooks. What have you to say for yourself? Is it sweet enough, Mr. Conklin? <laughs> if it isn't Miss Brooks, come in. <laughs> I said come in. You are Osgood Conklin? I am. And no doubt you heard of Bush's department store? I have. Well, I'm Bush. I'm a little pooped myself. <laughs> Out. Yeah, I'll be brief, Mr. Conklin. Each year, my store gives away contest prizes to children who write in the best letters to Santa Claus. We like to choose some prominent citizens in our community to play Santa for this occasion. Hence, my visit here. Uh, my dear Mr. Bush, if you're suggesting that I involve myself in the squalling clamor of hundreds of children in a department store, put it out of your mind. But, Mr. Conklin... Uh, you we... have no way of knowing this, of course, but I am a person with extremely high blood pressure and acute hypertension. Playing Santa to a band of yowling brats is out of the question. But I've invited all the photographers and reporters, Mr. Conklin. You'll get at the very least a two-column picture in every paper. I'm sorry. It's absolutely unthinkable for me to... to, to uh, two-column picture? <laughs> of course. You see, we've picked the winning letter, and you're the ideal choice to present the grand prize this afternoon. Why me? Because you're a school principal. And the contest winner is a little seven-year-old girl who wants to be a teacher when she grows up. A teacher? Well, I guess I can arrange it. I'd hate to disappoint a child, especially this obviously backward little tyke. 
What time shall I be there, Mr. Bush? Uh, four o'clock sharp, please. And thank you so much for accepting our invitation. You're welcome, I'm sure. Now, if you'll excuse me, sir, I must inspect some new gym equipment that just arrived. Of course, Miss Conger. Oh, before I leave your office, may I use the phone? Uh, certainly. It's right there on my desk. I'll see you at four, Mr. Bush. Right, thank you. Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> Hello, Mrs. Davis speaking. Oh, this is Mr. Bush of Bush's department store. My secretary gave me your phone number, Mrs. Davis. Told me what a grand job you've done of rounding up the children's letters in our letter to Santa contest. I was glad to help, Mr. Bush. Thank you, Mrs. Davis. Now, there's just one bit of information I need from you. Do you know where uh, Connie Brooks lives? Connie Brooks? Certainly. She lives right here with me. Well, that's a coincidence. Could I speak with her? Not now. She's still in school. Oh, of course. It's not three o'clock yet. As a matter of fact, I was just getting ready to pick her up. One of the students in school with her usually takes her home, but he's busy today. I see. Well, Miss Davis, you can do me a great favor. Instead of taking her home today, bring Connie right over to our store. What for? You'll see. What kind of toys does she favor, Mrs. Davis? Toys. Connie doesn't play with toys. Oh, the serious type, eh? Well, bring her over as early as you can, Mrs. Davis, so I can get acquainted with her. She'll probably warm up a bit after a nice romp in the sand pile. <laughs> now, remember, Mrs. Davis, don't tell her why she's coming to the store. I'd like it to be a surprise. It'll be a surprise, all right. <laughs> Now, will you please tell me what we're doing in Bush's department store, Mrs. Davis? I haven't enough money left to buy a Christmas seal, let alone do any shopping. Be patient, Connie. We'll find out as soon as I can locate Mr. Bush. I know. Let's cut out for the sand pile. It's right over there in the toy department. All right, but I... Oh, look, there's Mr. Boynton. Oh, hello, Miss Brooks, Mrs. Davis. Hello, Mr. Boynton. Excuse me just a moment, won't you? I'll go on ahead, Connie, and find Mr. Bush. Fine, Mrs. Davis. Well, Mr. Boynton, doing a little last-minute Christmas shopping? Oh, not exactly, Miss Brooks. Miss Enright asked me to come over here right after school. She's, uh, she's crazy about children, she says, and they're having some sort of contest here today. Where is she now? Oh, she's in the hardware department picking up a new roaster. She says next to children, she likes nothing better than cooking and housework. I bet she's terribly decent to animals, too. <laughs> I... I'm sorry I didn't see you after school, but Miss Enright insisted we leave at once. After all, it is... Her birthday today, I know, Mr. Boynton. I had a hunch you two would wind up alone. Oh, we're only going to a movie, Miss Brooks. Donald O'Connor in France has just opened at the state. It's the story of an army mule. Oh? That's where you're taking Miss Enright? That's right. What are you trying to do, start your own mule train? <laughs> got the most charming part, darling. Oh, you've acquired one of your own, haven't you, Mr. Boyd? <laughs> Hello, Prudence. <laughs> Cooked any interesting children lately? Please, ladies, please, let's get over to the toy department. They're getting ready for the ceremonies. The spotlight was just turned on that platform. Oh, fine, Mr. Boynton. I just adore toys. Well, why don't you act your age? <laughs> Come along, Miss Brooks. I see Mrs. Davis right in the front row. Attention, attention, quiet, please, children, quiet, children, quiet. Here, without further ado, is your old friend, Santa Claus. Oh, <laughs> ho, ho, ho. 
<laughs> Merry Christmas, kiddies. Why, that's Mr. Conklin. Is it really? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> of course. I'd recognize that bloodthirsty cheerfulness anywhere. <laughs> Here you are, Santa. Here's the prize-winning letter in the contest. I suppose you read it out loud and will surprise the author, who I know is among those listening. Surely, surely. <clears throat> it says, Dear Sandy Claus, Bill... C-L-A-W-S-S-S. -S -S. <laughs> That's nice. One S for each claw. <laughs> I don't want you to bring me very much toys at all, because then you would not have enough for all the other little children. Isn't she a doll? <laughs> Wait a minute. This sounds awfully familiar. Please, Sandy, just bring me a slate with some chalk and a eraser and some crayons and a ruler, because when I grow up, I want to be a English teacher. Oh, no. Signed, Connie Brooks, age seven. <laughs> now, if this little girl will step up... <laughs> Connie Brooks! <laughs> Sound like you know this girl, Mr. Conklin. Now, uh, let's get her up to the platform. Where are you, honey? You, Mr. Bush, down here. I'm Mrs. Davis. Oh, hello, Mrs. Davis. The girl you're looking for is standing right here beside me. What? Who are you? I'm Connie Brooks, age seven. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Brooks, what's the meaning of this? Yes, what is this hoax? There was no hoax intended, gentlemen. Mrs. Davis must have absentmindedly put my letter in with the other kids. When I wrote that letter, I was actually seven years old. You were never that young, darling. <laughs> oh, this is terrible. The press and photographers will be here any minute. Give me that bag of toys, Mr. Conklin. This girl gets nothing. Now, hold on there, Mr. Bush. The contest rules clearly state that the winner must be a child. If Miss Brooks was seven years old when she wrote that letter, she, she's entitled to take home anything she wants from the toy department. Yeah. I think you've got something there, Mr. Boynton. Well, uh, this is terribly embarrassing. Miss Brooks, if you'll just leave the premises before the press arrive, you may have anything in the toy department you desire. What do you want? Uh, Mr. Bush, this is Mr. Boynton. Wrap him up. <laughs> Arden returns in just a moment, but first... Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl. Tonight? Yes, tonight. Show him how much lovelier your hair can look after a luster cream shampoo. Luster cream, world's finest shampoo. No other shampoo in the world gives K. Dumas magic blend of secret ingredients plus gentle lanolin. Not a soap, not a liquid. Luster Cream Shampoo leaves hair three ways lovelier. Fragrantly clean, free of loose dandruff, glistening with sheen, soft, manageable. Even in hardest water, Luster Cream lathers instantly. No special rinse needed after a Luster Cream Shampoo. So gentle, Luster Cream is wonderful even for children's hair. Tonight, yes, tonight, try Luster Cream Shampoo. Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl, you owe your crowning glory to 
a luster cream shampoo. And now once again, here is Eve Arden. This Christmas, give yourself and your family the gift that keeps on giving, United States savings bonds, the present with the future. And buy savings bonds regularly. Start preparing now for those things you know you're going to want and need in the future. If you're on a regular payroll, use the Easy Payroll Savings Plan. If you're self-employed, use the Bond-a-Month Plan. Invest today in security, your own economic security and the security of your country. Buy United States savings bonds today. Next week, tune into another Our Miss Brooks show brought to you by Luster Cream Shampoo, the soft, glamorous, caressable hair, and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, directed by Al Lewis, with music by Wilbur Hatch. Mr. Boynton is played by Jeff Chandler, Mr. Conklin by Gail Gordon. Others in tonight's cast were Jane Morgan, Dick Crenna, Gloria McMillan, Mary Jane Croft, and Hal March. Here's good shaving news. Three men out of every four can get more comfortable, actually smoother shaves with Palmolive Brushless Shaving Cream. This is not just a claim. Here's the proof. 1,297 men tried the Palmolive Brushless Way to Shave described on the tube. And no matter how they shaved before, three men out of every four got more comfortable, actually smoother shaves. Try Palmolive Brushless yourself. See if you don't get more comfortable, actually smoother shaves the proved Palmolive Brushless Way. For mystery liberally sprinkled with laughs, listen to Mr. and Mrs. North, the exciting, fun-packed adventures of an amateur detective and his beautiful wife. Tune in Tuesday evening over most of these same stations. And be with us again next week at this same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. For a Christian sci-fi with humor, adventure, and a touch of romance, read Quantum Spacewalker, Jarl's Journey. Travel with Jarl through the universe and several dimensions as he unearths items to help those struggling to survive on Earth during the catastrophic conclusion of the age. GraceGrows.com has more information. Read Quantum Spacewalker, Jarl's Journey by Grace S. Gross. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Amos and Andy Show. Well, everything seems to be calm and peaceful at the moment with our Harlem friends. Andy finally located Madam Queen and got everything settled with her. There doesn't seem to be any trouble in sight, but with the boys, you never can tell. Right now, Amos and the Kingfish are in the office discussing Andy's feeling for Madam Queen. Oh, I'm telling you, Kingfish, the way Andy looks at Madam Queen, I can tell that he is in love with her again. Yeah, I still don't believe it, Amos. I always say that you can't cook an omelet but once. And I'm going to tell you another thing. When a souffle goes flat, you can't pump it up again. Yeah, but it seems like every day Andy seems to learn more and more about less and less. Yo, I tell you, Amos, another thing. 
Uh, come in, Henry. Hiya, Mr. Van Porter. Well, hello, boys. Hello. I only have a minute. I thought it was my duty as a friend to call on you in person, Kingfish, and remind you that your accident insurance policy lapses in about a week. A renewal is in order. Oh, that's a good thing to keep up, Kingfish. I don't agree with you. I've been paying all year on that accident insurance, and ain't nothing happened to me. Well, like one of the insurance companies say, common events don't necessarily cast their shadows on the sands of time beforehand. Uh, this has been a one-sided deal. Accidents seem to have a knack of picking out people that ain't insured to happen to. Oh, I tell you, every night when I go to bed, I think about it. I say, here I is without a busted bone or nothing. I is getting cheated. Yeah, well, you can't say that, Kingfish, because insurance is one of the finest things in the world. Absolutely. Our insurance statistics show that within the next ten years, four out of five of our policyholders will have accidents. Oh, Shuna? Yes? Uh, when has you got me scheduled for? <laughs> no, no, Kingfish, you don't understand. I advise you strongly to renew your policy. And remember... My only interest in it is as a friend and a humanitarian. Yeah, well, I'll think it over, Henry. Yes, and don't forget, your policy lapses next week. Well, I'll run along now. All right, uh, well, I'll walk over. Yeah, I'll, I'll walk out to the front door with you, going over to Anders' office. Mm-hmm. I'll uh, walk over there with you, Kingfrey. Well, I must get back to my office and send out some checks to insured people. Hmm. You know, when we have a patient in the hospital, it's our custom to pay them right at the door as they go in. Sure. It's our pay-as-you-enter clause. Well, yeah, well, uh, I'll let you know about the renewal, Henry. Uh, We're going to cut across here and drop over to Anders' office. Yes, well, I'll get on to my place. Uh, here, Kingfish, have a cigar. Oh, thank you, Henry, thank you. I'll give the policy double consideration. Well, so long, Mr. Van Porter. Goodbye, boys. Uh, Want to cut across to the other side, Kingfish? Yeah, let me light this cigar here. I think it's a five-center. Yeah, there's one thing about Henry. To... Uh, look out for that car, Kingfish. Kingfish, is you hurt? Emma. Oh, Emma. I'm certainly glad you brought him right here to the hospital. Yeah, I put him right in the taxi cab, Sapphire. Yeah, how you feeling, Kingfish? Oh, feel fine, feel fine. Of course, uh, that don't mean that I ain't hurt, though, you know. Well, where you feel any pain at, George? Well, it's hard to say, honey, but wherever the doctor's going to say I is hurt, that's where I feels it. Oh, I see. Well, whatever it is, it don't sound serious. Well, to tell you the truth, it was the Kingfish's fault. Well, first of all, he was jaywalking. Second, he wasn't looking where he was going. And the next thing, he was lighting a cigar while he was crossing the street in the middle of the block. And then on top of everything, the automobile didn't hit him. He walked into the side of the car when it was passing. <laughs> the man was nice about it, though. He even gave him his name and address. Well, now, wait a minute, Amos. Wait a minute. The kingfish has got a case. He's claiming he's suffering from shock. George, let me fix your pillar here. Yeah. You know, honey, you was lucky to be married to such a good provider as I is going to be. Yes, we sure is lucky, George. Uh, look, Kingfish, I really don't think there's anything wrong with you. Well, I know this much. Uh, 
It's going to take me a year to get over the shock. Yeah, it'll be easy a year, counting the relapses and all that stuff. Uh, don't forget I'm suffering from mental anguish, too, you know. Yeah, there's another two months right there, you know. Sure there. Oh, I tell you, I'm going to get a hold of the lawyer for you and take care of this whole business. You know, laying here in the hospital on these white sheets is high living. My advice to the world is to always carry plenty of insurance. I was resting in bed at $25 a week. Come in, Hendricks. Thank you. Did you want to see me, Mr. Hitchcock? Uh, sit down. According to our report here, we seem to be getting too many accident claims. The uh, proportion is wrong. I agree with you, Mr. Hitchcock. I'm perfectly willing to have the Progressive Insurance Company pay all just claims. But on the other hand, we want to make sure that these claims are justified. And uh, some of them bear investigation. What would you like to have me do? I've sent for Irene Johnson. Uh, she's the young girl who lives in Harlem. She's our investigator up there. She's waiting outside. Wait a minute. I'll get her in. Yes, Mr. Hitchcock. Uh, send Irene Johnson in here. Yes, sir. Any particular case you're thinking of, Mr. Hitchcock? Oh, come in, Miss Johnson. Uh, you know Mr. Hendricks, our assistant manager. Oh, yes. Glad to see you. How are you? Miss Johnson, we've got a few leads on this George Kingfish Stevens accident claim in Harlem. Yes, sir. Now, here's the idea. I want you to go to Harlem and contact a man by the name of Andrew H. Brown. We found out that he is Stevens' best friend. And uh, <clears throat> by your usual procedure... Find out all you can about the Stevens accident. You remember how you handled the Hillman case. Yes, sir. You say his name is Andrew Brown? Yes, and we're anxious to make sure if this case justifies payment. And leave it to me, Mr. Hitchcock. I'll get on it right away. Ah, uh, Miss Andy, did you send for me? Yeah. <laughs> sit down, Lightning, sit down. Yes, I was over at the hospital, and I see the kingfish. He sure do feel fine for a man that's so sick, don't he? Yeah. <laughs> Lucky he got hit before his insurance policy done lapsed up on him. Yes, well, what's wrong with him? Well, he got what they call insurance company shock. Yes, uh, how bad is he shocked? Well, he's claiming that the shock was 25 volts a week at a dollar a volt. <laughs> well, he didn't act that way to me. He's going to try to collect, ain't he? Oh, he can't miss. He's got the insurance company behind the eight ball. Uh, you see, he was not only hit, but he was knocked down, both. <laughs> now, that's where the double indemnified clause comes in. I'm so sorry to hear that. Wait, wait a minute, Lightning. Wait a minute. Yeah, Hello? Hello. Could I speak to Mr. Brown? Uh, this is Mr. Brown speaking. Oh, well, my name is Irene Johnson. Uh, who? Irene Johnson. You remember, I met you at the Savoy Ballroom around Christmas time, and you told me to call you. Uh, who? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 what is the name? Irene Johnson. You remember. You told me you thought I was... Pretty. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah. I remember you. I, uh, uh, at the Savoy, huh? Mm-hmm. I've been away, and I just got back in town, and I thought I'd call you and see if you remembered me. Remember you? Ha, ha, ha. 
Uh, what's the name again? Irene Johnson. Oh, show sure, Irene Johnson, yeah. Uh, what you doing tonight, Irene? Uh, how about us having supper? Oh, that'd be fun. I'm going to be shopping, and maybe I could stop by your office around six. Okay, I'll wait for you in front of the office. All right, Mr. Brown. I'll see you at six. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Lightning? Aye, yes, sir. Go up to my room and press my blue suit right away. Another woman has done lost her head over me. <laughs> All right, sir. I'll whiz over right away. <laughs> yeah. Whiz fast, too. Whiz fast. Well, hi, fellas. Oh, come in, Amos. Come uh, in here. Sit down, Miss Amos. I just leaving. I'll take care of everything, Miss Andy, so you can get dressed up for the gal. Yeah. So long. So long, so long. Well, what's this about the gal? Oh, a new gal by the name Irene Johnson that I done met once and forgot. She found me again, though. Yeah. Oh, I tell you, Amos, I don't know what it is about me. I draws women to me. I is a regular human maggot, you know it? I'm going to tell you something. I thought you was going with Madam Queen. Well, I is going with her, but a guy has got to have a spare, ain't he? Tell me this. Is you going to let Madam Queen know that you have seen another gal? You liable to get in trouble there. Well, Amos, I'm going to tell you, a great lover on today's market has got to know how to juggle women. Yeah. You got to keep them apart. Uh-huh. It's that old thing that's in the book that some other great lover writ, never the twain shall meet, <laughs> special if you happen to be with one of them. <laughs> uh, come in, Brother Andy, come in. Doing, Kingfish? How you doing? Is it getting monotonous uh, staying in bed there? Oh, no, no. I was free to get out of bed and walk around the halls if nobody sees me. Yeah, well, that's good. That's good. And I just want to tell you, Andy, that in my great trouble, I ain't forgot our dear lords, the misted knights of the sea. That's the stuff. In roaming around the halls and rooms here, I's done signed up four new members and collected the dues from them. Yeah. Yeah, I got a fifth one, too, but I ain't quite... Show about getting his dues. Why not? Well, when I signed him, he was still under the effects of the antiseptic there. <laughs> uh, tell me this. What have you done done? Well, what you want me to do? Yeah, that's what I'm going to tell you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get me a doctor. Find a doctor that knows a case of shock when he sees it. Uh-huh. And even when he don't see it. Yeah, sure. Now, look here. Send him over here to give me a complete examination. You see, when I puts in my claim to the insurance company, I want to make sure that I ain't overlooking no possibilities. Yeah. All right, I'll send the doctor over here. Yeah, get me a good doctor. Yeah, I knows one that the minute you walk in his office, he gets sad. Gets sad. Oh, yeah. He can always find something wrong. Yeah. I'll have him here in the morning. Oh, that's good. Uh, where are you going now? Well, I got to go home and dress. Uh, the love bug is nibbling at me again. <laughs> This is some nightclub, ain't it? Oh, yeah. I've never been here before. Yeah, well, you know, Irene, I like you. Tell you the truth, I'd like to have a date with you every night in the week. Oh, Andy, what about 
without all your other girlfriends. Oh, well, I could see them in the afternoon. <laughs> oh, well, tell me, Andy, how are all your gentlemen friends? Gentlemen friends? Oh, they're fine. Uh, uh, you don't mind if I hold your hand, Irene, do you? Oh, no. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear they're all well. Yeah. Joe is nice holding hands here, ain't it, Irene? Yes, it is. Uh, anything new with any of your friends? Listen, honey, I was paying 50 cents cover charge here. We can talk about my friends while we're walking home. Oh. <laughs> well, the only reason I was interested was because you used to talk about that certain one so much. I think his name was, um, oh, yes, uh, the Kingfish. Oh, yeah, well, I can't tell you nothing about the Kingfish. Well, why not? Oh, you see, he's in the hospital right now. He's laying over there, kind of running up a claim against the insurance company. He don't want nobody to know it. Oh, insurance is a wonderful thing, all right. Yeah, well, the reason I got to keep the whole thing strictly confidential is because he wants to stay there as long as he can and get as much as he can, you see. Oh. He wasn't hurt. He was shocked. But, of course, you can't tell the insurance company that. No. Well, I don't know anything about insurance. Yeah, but you see, though, why I can't tell you nothing about the kingfish. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to say nothing that might get back to the insurance company. Everybody knows who Andy's new girlfriend is, except Andy. Right now, she's back at the insurance company talking with the manager and the company doctor. Those are the facts, Dr. Smith, as reported by our investigator here, Irene Johnson. I see. Did you see the patient at all, Miss Johnson? No, Dr. Smith. I secured my information from his closest friend, a man by the name of Andrew Brown. He seems to be handling all of the details for this Kingfish Stevens. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry I couldn't get to the insured sooner and make an examination, but we've had so many claims lately, I've been tied up. Well, Dr. Smith, when do you think you can see this man, Stevens, and make an examination? I'll go right out there this morning. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, Kingfish. How are you? Oh, I tell you, I'm getting along. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, who is this? Your insurance agent, Henry Van Porter. Feel terrible, Henry. Feel terrible. <laughs> Bad shape. Well, just what is it that's wrong with you, Kingfish? Well, I know mostly that I is a victim of shock, Henry. And it hit me hard, because, well, you see, I ain't been insulated against that stuff. Well, just what does a case of shock feel like, Kingfish? Well, uh, it's the kind of a feeling that... Uh, well, uh, when you got it, uh, uh, you see it. Well, it's a thing that, well, the way it affects you, it makes you sort of a feeling to, that if you has it, it's just the opposite of the feeling that you has when you ain't got nothing. That's what it is. <laughs> and at night, it's twice as bad. Well, it certainly sounds very mysterious, Kingfish. Yeah, well, now, look, Henry. Oh, me. I'm trying to catch my breath here. Yeah. Uh, you say you pay your claims right at the door of the hospital, didn't you? That's right. I've been down there three times a day and ain't nothing happened to me. 
Well, don't worry now. The claim will be paid as soon as uh, your injuries has been determined, the extent of them. Oh, the what? I say as soon as the uh, extent of your injuries is determined, the claim will be paid. Yeah, well, uh, I got an uh, awful shaking up there. According to my calculations, I got knocked right into a higher bracket. That's what I've done. Yes, well, I'll drop over today or tomorrow. Goodbye. Uh, goodbye. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I believe I'll take another nap. I got to get plenty of rest and keep this shock in good shape. <laughs> oh, oh. oh, who is it now? Hello. Kingfish, this is Andy. Oh, yeah. Andy, how is you? Listen, I couldn't get that sour-faced doctor that I wanted to get, but the nurse in his office is sending over another nurse. And the way the nurse explained it to me... Now, wait he... a minute. He's sending over a doctor or a nurse. So who's going to send over here? <laughs> I say he's sending over another doctor. Oh, another doctor. Good. Yeah. The nurse explained it to me. The nurse did? Yeah. She said that he can find things wrong with you, too. Uh-huh. Now, he ought to be there any time. Yeah. She was going to try to locate him while he was out on call. You was my pal, Andy. You were my pal. You know, I remember the last thing I thought of when the automobile hit me. I said to myself, I was going to share this good fortune with my friend Andy. <laughs> Pardon me, nurse. Where can I find the patient, George Stevens? I'm sorry. There are no visitors allowed for another hour. Uh, here's my card. Dr. C. Harvey Smith, medical examiner, Progressive Insurance Company. Oh, Dr. Smith, of course. I'd like to examine the patient. Well, you'll find him right across the hall, room 202. Thank you. Oh, come in. Mr. Stevens? Oh, uh, is uh, you the doctor? Yes, I'm here to make an examination. Oh, great. Well, Mr. Stevens, how do you feel? Uh, well, just between the two of us, I feel fine. I just want to make sure that I ain't all busted up inside where it don't show you. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll just take a look at that. Hmm. Mm, you haven't had any temperature. Oh, no, no, feel great. You see, doctor, just between the two of us again, I as insured for anything that you find, so... Find whatever you can, you know. <laughs> I see. Well, let's pull the covers back here a little. Yeah. Oh, this little scar on your head there. That... Uh, well, that uh, wasn't exactly an accident. Mm -hmm. That was another accident I had at home. A vase slipped out of my wife's hand. Again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Are your legs all right? Oh, yeah, legs is fine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do your arms feel? Oh, it is great, too. I do my calorisenics every morning. I get up and do all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. That's good stuff. Do you have any pain of any kind? Uh, no, sir, no, sir. Of course, I worry a lot. Uh, the main thing, uh, just between the two of us that I worried about, I want to make sure that the insurance company going to give me as much as I can get, you see. Oh, yeah. You see, I was basing everything on shock. You know, that's a bad thing, and I figured that if I can stay shocked for a year at $25 a week, that would be pretty good. You know how I tell you. Yes, right? yes, yes. Well, <clears throat> uh, uh, what is that thing you're filling out there, Doctor? Oh, this is the medical form showing the extent of your injuries. Yeah, well, extend it out as much as you can, Dad. <laughs> yeah, i write down everything you can think of. Yes, now just let me tap your chest here. Oh. Huh? Uh, yeah. uh, what is you marking on the chart there? Normal, perfect shape. Now, uh, let me check your knee reflex. Yeah, sir. 
flew right up there, didn't it, Doctor? Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that's bad, isn't it? Oh, just perfect. Absolutely normal. Wait a minute, Doctor. I ain't trying to collect from the insurance company. You see, that's what I'm trying to do. You think I'm trying to win a physical culture prize here. Yes, I understand. Now, I want to listen to your heart here with a stethoscope. Yeah, so tune in my heart, see what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Now, just breathe in and out, please. Uh, breathe just naturally, please. I can't. Since the accident, that's the only way I can do it. Oh, how did you breathe before the accident? Like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you can't breathe that way now. Uh, not a chance. No, I can't do it no more. <laughs> Uh, can you tell me of any other specific thing that bothers you? Just getting the money from the insurance company. <laughs> well, there are no head injuries or anything like that. Uh, I think that's everything, Mr. Stevens. Uh, you got everything down there you can think of? Yes, I think everything is on the report. Uh, will you sign this report, please? Uh, yes, I'll sign that. George Stevens. Thank you. Uh, doctor, tell me this. In case I tell the insurance company that I'm going to take them to court, uh, would you be willing to tell him that you would go to court and testify in the case? Mr. Stevens, if this goes to court, rest assured, I'll be there. That a boy, Dockey, that a boy, yeah. <laughs> Stick with me there. You is my man, yeah. And another thing, uh, keep all this confidential, you see. I don't want everybody to know. You know what I mean. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, I think I know. Yeah, now... If uh, I want to get a hold of you, Doctor, you better leave me your phone number here. Uh, I'll leave one of my cards on the table right here. Oh, thank you, Doc. Yeah, I'll get you some other case as soon as I get out. (laughs) Fine. Well, I'll run along now. (laughs) Yeah, uh, uh, come in, come in. Yeah, come in, Andy. Is you busy? Uh, no, the doctor just leaving. Well, goodbye, Uh, Mr. Stevens. uh, Thank you very much, Doc. I'll get in touch with you. Everything working fine, ain't it? Oh, the doctor went over me from top to bottom. I tipped him off about the shock. Mm-hmm. He put them tubes in his ears. He listened to my chest and all that stuff. He thumped me up good and all that. Oh, in. yeah, that's great. I'm glad you said they sent you over a good one here. Yeah, oh, he is with me 100%. Yeah, you know when the two of us get to working together, we really got a great combination. Oh, yeah, I got an idea to another one. Yeah? What is it, partner, dear? Uh, look here, after we gets the money from the insurance company, then we sues the motorist that hit me. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I think we better forget the motorist and go after the insurance company. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, we'll forget the motorist and sue the insurance company. Oh, sure, that's the thing to do. The motorist don't amount to nothing. No. Yeah, and this doctor that examined me will go to court for me if the insurance company wants to go to bat on the thing. Oh, great. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, how'd you like the doctor? What was his name? Uh, his name uh, is over there on that card. He left it on the table right there. Yeah, let me see here. Dr. C. Harvey Smith, pro... Uh-oh. Uh, what you thinking? Uh, this is the card of the doctor that was just in here to examine you? Yeah. Well, uh, like we both said, uh, there's only one thing to do. Uh, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Sue the motorist. <laughs>
Next Friday, at this same time, we'll bring you another Amos and Andy show with more about the kingfish and his shock. Be sure to hear it, for at that time, the boys will have as their guest the fine motion picture and stage star, Victor Moore. That's next Friday night over these same stations. Our program is broadcast to our armed forces everywhere. This is Harlow Wilcox, and before I say goodnight, I have this important reminder. You have been asked this year to give more generously than ever before to the Red Cross. Yes, more generously, even though it might be harder for you to do so. But remember, never has the need for Red Cross services been so great. One of the many, many services rendered by the Red Cross is to keep up morale at home and over there. In time of trouble, a Red Cross field director manages to contact the serviceman's local Red Cross chapter for information and help. So won't you help them keep up this and their many other services? Match Red Cross devotion with your dollars. Thank you, and good night. Looking for a book that combines the Christian faith with a fantasy adventure? Creator's Call does just that. 18-year-old Edward has been raised with tales of distant lands where dragons and other strange beasts dwell. He dreams of one day joining the Keepers, who fight against them to keep the land safe, however, life's obstacles keep him firmly rooted in the small town of Cadestone. When 17-year-old June comes passing through, following a dream given to her by the creator of the universe, Edward's life is about to change. Pursued by a demon-possessed man, the two of them are forced to flee to areas where dragons and monsters are not just tales but reality. June and Edward eventually discover what the demons want from them. Is it possible to defeat this evil and save everyone from the darkness that threatens their lands? Creator's Call is a Christian fantasy novel with clear Christian messages. A book that glorifies God while taking you on an adventure. Pick up a copy of Creator's Call today. starts early in the American colonies. This autumn dawn, the sun is still below the horizon, and just its first light touches the land. Across the marshy rice fields of the Carolinas, brushing the tops of the trees in the backwoods, resting lightly in the clearings, across the rolling hills of Virginia and the tidy farms of the middle colonies, lighting up the masts of the crowded ships in the harbors of New England, and curling in the surf along the beaches of the coast. Possums and owls are closing their eyes. Small night creatures are finding their holes and their burrows, relinquishing the land to the day creatures once more. Of these day creatures, consider the Jonathan Pryor family and their cow. Soft, brown-eyed, big Beatrice the cow, newly awake under the thatched roof of the barn, rustles uncomfortably in her store. Her udder is full and heavy, and she wants milking, and here it is, almost five o'clock. Inside the farmhouse, Martha Pryor, 26, haggard, brittle, has been up for more than an hour working around the huge kitchen fireplace. Her children stand shivering near the fire, dressing sleepily. Four born so far. One dead, his soul rest in peace. Another on the way, of course. 
As she reaches the long-armed paddle deep into the brick oven to bring out the loaves, she thinks about the day ahead. After breakfast, cleaning up. Boil the water for the wash. Hmm. Maybe rain. Sarah's looking peaky. Keep away the fever, please, God. After wash, slop the hogs. Chickens come scratching. Kill one for tomorrow's pies. Cut its throat so skillful, nary a sound be heard. Bleed it and clean it and pluck it and singe it. <laughs> Fine chicken pie. Skim the top from Big Beatrice's pail and add it to the cream saved. And churn the butter. Sarah, thee shall churn the butter this morning. Yes, ma'am. Soak the beans. Pare the apples. Mix the dough. Uh, and Sarah, after the churning, we shall pare the apples for the pie. Yes, ma'am. Michael, poke up the fire a little. And Michael, this morning, put some dirt in the privy hole. Flies getting fierce. And so's the air out there. Where is thy father? Jonathan! Oh, uh, uh, here I am, Martha. It's already struck five, Jonathan. These sets a bad example. Why, Martha, the children are already up and shivering there, I see. Sarah, do hurry with thy dressing. I don't like to start the day with a sight of flesh turned blue. No, Martha. The children are earnest souls. They take after thee, my dear. Not likely to be ruined by their lazy father. There. There's old Crumpletail awake at last. Perhaps it's he I set the bad example for, eh? Here's thy brandy now. Drink it down and here's a slice of the loaf. Though it's almost dawn, it'll still be dark in the barn. So I've lit the lantern for thee. Hmm. Well, then, come along, Michael. We'll go milk Big Beatrice. It'll be thy chore soon enough now. Big lad going on nine-year-old. Michael follows his father out the door into the dawn, feeling almost a man since soon Big Beatrice will be his to tend. He walks across the barnyard and looks up into the sky, thinking that perhaps he has never seen a dawn so fine. Inland and south, deep in the wooded hills of the Carolinas, Sakota, Cherokee Brave, stretches in the same early morning light. He has paused at the gate of the village to watch the women hurrying from one dwelling to another, carrying baskets of persimmons, nuts, beans, corn. Orange and brown and green and yellow to decorate the dawn. The dull sound of stone on corn on stone carries to him through the clear air. My sister Tumaka already pounds the corn into meal, and my youngest sister there in the square, her broom as big as she. The little girls of the village have bundled twigs into brooms and are sweeping the square clean, for today is the green corn ceremony. A time for renewing life. A time of cleansing. Worn pottery gathered in a big hut, and later we will break it all. And at the same time, old quarrels to be forgotten. Kuana and I will forget the words we spoke at the last hunting just as well before winter locks us up together in the village. The boys of the village have already gone to the pools in the river to fish. 
Sakota himself will now leave to pole his raft up the river to the place of the traps to gather the grouse and the quail. Toward the coast in the Carolina Low Country, the slave quarters of the Fairchild Plantation are almost empty. The long, thin line of black men and women is already on its way to the rice fields, and the only sounds from the shacks here are the low moans of those with the fever too sick to go to the fields. Up on the hill among the mimosas, the big white house is empty. Its shutters closed against the fever season. Fairchild and his family are at their townhouse in Charleston as they are each summer until the danger is past. There, in one of the upstairs bedrooms, the two Fairchild girls are dressing with more care than usual. But I have to breakfast. Hand me that blue silk sash, Thaya. After breakfast, Mama and Papa and we and our guests will all retire to the dancing room for a minuet. At the plantation, the Fairchild slaves are hard at work in the rice fields and in the woods nearby, clearing the land for more planting. Up in Providence, Rhode Island colony, it's time for the town meeting to begin. The free men of the town collect in the hall to discuss certain matters of consequence. Since no one bathes in the colonies unless he happens to fall into a river, the air in any room full of people quickly grows high. Still, the smell on this day isn't as bad as it was during the summer meetings, and there aren't quite as many flies. Order! Order, quiet, gentlemen, quiet, please. Now, today we're going to vote on the resolution that... <clears throat> after the first day of October next, no geese shall be let go upon the common or in the highways nor in the water within this township. Yeah, now, where, where's Rufus Gates? I, I don't see him here. Does anyone know what's happened to Rufus? Rufus Gates is sitting in his upstairs bedroom, dead drunk. Not by choice, but for purposes of anesthesia. For seven days, he has suffered from an abscessed tooth, and all the home remedies have failed. How can she be? Or else, two cloves of garlic a day, chewed carefully. This little poultice held between the gum and the inside of the lip... Never you mind what's in it. That bad tooth of his, it comes from brushing, of course. I hear it brushed its teeth several times a week, removing in this way the protective coating. The doctor, important, respected, relying more perhaps on the magic of his beard than on physiology, treats anything from scald head and itch to cancers. And now he is preparing for the extraction. From his bag, he takes the tooth puller. He notices a blood stain on it and wipes it off on his sleeve. The blood probably came off the knife he used this morning to perform an amputation. He reaches up and smooths his mustache contentedly with the tips of his fingers as he recalls the operation. Nice job, that. Nasty compound fracture. 
Nothing for it but to lop off that leg. Nice, clean job. Far cry from a century ago when your barber did such things, eh? He did scream loud, though. Not enough brandy in him. And he turns toward the figure slumped in the chair, pleased that this patient is well soaked. It was soon one morning When the sun is Twelve o'clock noon. On the Fairchild Plantation, out in the fields, the slaves have stopped work and lie on a dry bank swatting mosquitoes. Two of them, Matty and Obadiah, are lucky to still be together after four years, lucky to have each other to complain to when the overseer is out of earshot. Jim, he looked bad this morning. Fever got him for sure. No way to die long like that. His cabin's so dark. No way to die. No way to live, neither. We have five men got clean away over the Carter's place. Yeah. Sure do take guts. What's out there? Land we never seen. Swamps out there can suck you down. Woods full of trees that don't look like no trees at home. And wolves. That's nothing to what happens. They catch you. They burn the old Luke alive. Hmm. Funny, so many tries it. More than you'd expect. You ever think about it, Opadot? Now, Maddie. What do you do I try to slip away? No, I stay here. Watering the fields with my sweat. Someday feeding the soil with my blood. Well, in the meantime... They lets us come out here full dawn, and they lets us stay out here till dark. And they lets us stop once, like we're doing now. Once in the middle of the day, 10, 15 whole minutes, maybe. Ain't enough time to ease one misery out of one bone. <laughs> and I got a body full of misery. 10 minutes in the sun with our bacon. Cold bacon. Yeah. Well, that's all we got. And all we ever gonna have, rice and bacon. Oh, I recollect they give us a little pinch of salt sometime last spring. I says, you look at here, Captain. You got a hard work and On the prior farm, Martha is bending over her heavy iron pots, her face red from the heat, her eyes watering from the smoke. Corned beef and root vegetables have been simmering all morning, and biscuits are almost ready in the brick oven. Well, here we are, hungry as hounds. Looks like rain, Martha. We may not get much more done today. As they stand around the board, Jonathan says grace. The board has a bowl of salt, a jar of apple butter, bowls of mixed mustard pickles, and horseradish. Amen. Jonathan Pryor's midday dinner is heaped on a pewter plate. The rest have wooden trenchers. They tie huge huckabuck napkins around their necks and pick up the chunks of beef with their fingers, careful not to let the grease run down their arms. The manners of the day reflect the circumstances. Few utensils, frequently spoiled meat. 
Due east, many miles at sea, men have forgotten their hunger. A sailing ship has sighted a whale, and small boats have been lowered in pursuit. Now nothing counts, nothing is real to the men in these boats but the huge thrashing tail and their own skills. Back on the shore in the Pryor's barn, Michael Pryor and his friends are engrossed in a rainy day sport in the corn crib, a rat killing. The rats live under the pile of corn. The boys, holding clubs tightly in their hands, slowly pick the ears off the top of the pile. The pile gets lower and lower. And finally... There! There goes There's one. another. You got him. Look, look at the blood in him. Nasty big brute. Watch out. There he goes. Right on the head. Look, I broke this in back. got me five already. Get out of the way. In Williamsburg at the tavern, men gather to sit out the rain and share a mug of rum against the wet afternoon. Farther down the coast in Charleston, though the afternoon is now half gone, the Fairchild men are still at table left with the freedom of their pipes and unrestrained talk. But the ladies upstairs in the bedroom seek a freedom of their own. Freedom from the whalebone biting into the flesh around their waists. Naya, just loosen that there a little more. Oh, there. I swear that is bliss. I thought I'd die. But what a lovely meal. Turtle soup, scalloped oysters, roast venison, duckling with red rice. And then that great, enormous plate of plum pudding. Well, I tried to hold back, but you just can't eat nothing at all. Now the table downstairs has been cleared except for the plates of raisins and nuts and the glasses. The men pass the crystal decanter of Madeira, and one tells a story about Gordy McLaren, a backwoods fur trader known in Charleston. His eyes are bright red and his hair standing up all over his head, and he's hugging that tree like it's his mammy. And he is hollering. Sound like a donkey being skinned alive. Seems he climbed up there the night before when he was full of drink, and he didn't know what he was doing. And he went to sleep right up there in that tree. And he just woke up, looked down, and didn't know the first thing about getting down. He kept hollering, My name is Gordon McClan, and I don't belong in no blasted tree. <laughs> Gordy McLaren, a small, tough, canny man, comes into Charleston every spring from the backwoods of the Carolinas. He and the other fur traders meet in town for a short, happy time of drinking and fighting and reminding themselves what white women look like. Then they disappear again along the old Indian trails. Once in the wilderness, they are men of courage and shrewd instinct. Now, deep in the wooded hills this early autumn afternoon, Gordy McLaren is just rounding the trail at the bend of the river. As he comes out of the woods at the river's edge, he stops and stands in the dappled light. He moves nothing but his eyes, more from habit than from caution, for this is friendly Cherokee country. He stands absorbing each detail of the scene. That beetle now tipped over on his back. Poor devil, near buried in that black mound of hungry ants. Web broken there in the path ahead. A feather there under the sapling. Grouse? 
that berry crushed. What did the deed? Moccasin or hoof? On the river, fish-mouthing insects make circles in the slow-flowing water, and the afternoon sun glints across the surface. Gordon McLaren inventories his surroundings and then sniffs. Smoke-laden with rich smells. He thinks a moment and then smiles. He whispers to himself. Ah, so it's the ceremony then. And me, I'm just in time. He hasn't moved. Out on the river, something glides noiselessly into the edge of his vision. A cane raft slips into sight and past him. A young Cherokee kneeling in its center with piles of dead wildfowl beside him. Sikota, gone for the birds for the feast. <laughs> I'll be having me a lovely meal tonight, I can see. Bare ribs and hominy and quail. The raft slips past and is soon out of sight. Sikota hasn't moved, hasn't looked to either side, but McLaren knows he has been seen and that the Cherokee knew he was standing there in the half-shadows. Eh, never mind. It'll give him a chance to get ready to give me a proper welcome. And he steps out of the shadow with no pretense now of caution and makes his way down the river bank to the Cherokee town close by. Across the land now, the light begins to fade. On the plantation, dusk is darkening the fields, and the slaves move back across them in a thin, slow line. Their field work is done for the day, but they still have evening chores. Gotta chop some wood for the big house. I got those mules to feed. I'm so tired sometimes. Hope that old ornery mule kicked me so hard, maybe in the head. And I don't never see no more right. Never see another weary day. Matter you just talking. Yeah, I just talking. In the prior farmhouse after supper, Martha is at the spinning wheel while Jonathan sits with his pipe and toddy on the high back bench, scowling at the fire. Danged, miserable thing. Blasted, blue-tailed, blithering, smoky old Jonathan. thing. Jonathan! Go on with thy reading, Sarah. A plow man on his legs is higher than a gentleman on his knees. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. The youth key is always bright. Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac, which either reflects the new American character or is helping to create it, is read aloud by many firesides tonight, but few read for long. Bones ache from the day's hard work, and eyes ache from the dim light once the sun has gone down. Now only one Betty lamp hangs in the prior kitchen, sputtering with bear grease. Big Beatrice, the cow, already drowses with her cud. Michael and Sarah and little Jonathan have gone to bed. And their father, still sitting on the bench, painfully pulls off one shoe and then the other. Martha, one day, 
Perhaps there will come a cobbler who will make a shoe to fit the right foot and a shoe to fit the left foot. The feet are different. Why shouldn't the shoes be? Who? Uh, is thee coming to bed, woman? One by one the lamps in the land are extinguished. One by one the fires die. Gordy McLaren, wrapped in a beaver blanket, lies in Sakota's dwelling watching the last coals glow and then darken. In Charleston, the Fairchild girl lies with a wooden block under her neck to protect her hairdo and tries to sleep. When she finally dozes, she dreams of... Weevils in my hair. In the slave quarters of the plantation, Mattie and Obadiah cover their small fire with ashes and then lie together huddled in the dark. We ain't got nothing. <laughs> nothing except bacon and rice. And each other. And they sleep. Jonathan Pryor, farmer, gives a loud snore, and Martha reaches out in her sleep to nudge him. And now all the day creatures in the land are still. One by one, the night creatures come out of their holes and burrows, but even they go their ways in silence. This has been another program in the series, Our Nation's Heritage, produced and presented as a public service by Standard Oil Company of California. Read Conflict with Shadows. A fast-paced story of invading darkness. The first in a series of light versus darkness, and the connection with the past to help fight for the future. When the Bathsheba invade, John Vega and Nicolay Dan must come together to stop them from destroying their worlds. It will lead them far beyond known space only to find out that this is more than a battle for territory, but a battle for the souls of mankind. But there is always hope. Pick up a copy of Conflict with Shadows at your favorite online bookstore. Journey into Space The BBC presents Jet Morgan in Operation Luna. Morgan and his crew left rocket ship Luna and at the invitation of a mysterious voice that spoke to them over their radios entered the donut-shaped spaceship that had landed near them. Once the strange craft had been boarded and Jet and his companions were settled in its inner cabin, the ship took off. Then contact with the voice was lost due to the magnetic field which surrounded the ship neutralizing the spacemen's personal radios. 
But even though they had lost contact with the voice, they were, with the aid of a three-dimensional televiewer, able to see where they were going and the country they were passing over. Then, almost without warning, the ship began to drop towards the ground. Oh, oh, blimey! They slowed down kind of sudden, didn't they? I'll have no stomach left at all in a minute. We're going to make a gentle landing anyway. made it. We're down. This must be where we change. Change is right. But for what? We've got to get out first. Or should I say, get let out. I wonder where we are. Well, if we called up that Mr. Mystery, he might tell us. Now that music stopped, the radio should be working. Oh, why don't I keep my big mouth shut? It's the hatch. It's opening. Then come on, what are we waiting for? Let's get out of here. Wait a minute. Don't be in such a hurry. Hey. You can't get out until the outer cabin has been opened, too. Oh, we were trying to call you. I'm sorry. Your radios don't function while the power of our ship is in operation. We found that out for ourselves. Where are we? And what do you want us to do now? First, have a little patience. Now he's lecturing us, like we were kids. In a few moments, the main door of the ship will open and you will be able to go outside. And then? Before you go, I'd like you to look at the televiewer. But it's not working anymore. It switched itself off when we landed. It's warming up. There's a new picture appearing. Hey, what's that? Good heavens. What is it, Doc? Oh, don't you recognize it? I once drew a picture of that. Hey? Yes, on the moon. Don't you remember? It was in the crater. Filled it completely. I saw it on our own televiewer. Yes, that's it. Exactly the same as Doc described. Then what's it doing here on the Earth? Thousands of years before its time. Or after. Well, what's it doing here anyway? So you did see it on the moon. How do you mean? We thought you might have done. You mean you wanted Doc to see it? We didn't mind who saw it, so long as somebody did. Well, you weren't disappointed. And it frightened the living daylights out of us. It's because although Doc saw it on the televiewer, neither Jet nor I saw it outside. Of course not. It wasn't there. What? You merely saw a picture of it. Then it wasn't on the moon at all? No, not on the moon. Well, where was it? Where it is now. Not far from the very spot where you're standing. But what, what's the idea? Why show us pictures of those things anyhow? We were trying to contact you. Show you the things that are common to us. We were trying to make you understand what kind of beings we are. Trying to give you a glimpse of the objects that are common to our lives and existence. Oh, what's common about that thing? Couldn't you have contacted us in some other way? We tried many ways. First, we sent one of our reconnaissance craft to escort you and try to contact you by radio just as I am doing now. Well, there wasn't much point in that. Whenever your ships came anywhere near us, all our electrical equipment packed in. That we discovered, eventually. What other ways did you try? For a while, we concentrated only on you. Oh? Well, how? Once we got you away from your ship and your companions, we tried to transport you to where we were. But we failed. You eluded us. Transport me? In what way? In the way we always transport ourselves in space through time. You didn't exactly fail. I did move in time. I'll say he did. He disappeared for an hour or more. And during that period, time for me went backwards. I returned to my childhood. I know. At least we know you went somewhere. But not in the direction we intended to take you. You just disappeared. Blimey, you want to be more careful in future then, mate. How did you do it? Do what? Disappear like that. It was very clever. But I didn't do it. Not consciously. You didn't? No. Then you're not so clever as we thought. Anything that happened to me, well, to any of us up there on the moon, was your doing. It must have been. We were giving the credit to you. That's why we've been so interested in you. We thought you had secrets we might learn. 
and used to our advantage. We've been thinking exactly the same thing about you. But you do have things we wish to know about. Your ships and the power that drives them. Your apparent ability to travel through time. Those things are mere theories where we come from in the 20th century. You cannot travel through time? No. Well, not wittingly. We haven't the least idea how we got where we are now. All we do know is that your ships and you had something to do with it. Then how do you travel from one part of the universe to another? We don't. We never have. The furthest we ever got was from the Earth to the Moon, and we got back again, but with disastrous results. We don't belong here. This is not our world. It's not ours, either. Then what are you doing here? Thousands of years ago, we began to colonize the Earth. Colonize it? Yes, but we don't belong here. We don't belong anywhere. How do you mean? Our own planet is dead. Gone. Which planet? The one which gave us birth. Where we developed and progressed. But now we can never return to it. Why not? I told you. It is gone. Dead. Then what killed it? Its sun blew up. Eh? Once it was a star like your sun, with planets, life-giving planets, revolving around it. And then it began to expand, became a giant red star of such colossal size that it extended far beyond the orbits of the planets that revolved around it and consumed them. Our home was roasted out of existence. Well, how did you get away? Long before our world began to be threatened by our own sun, we had learned how to travel through space, but only to planets within our own system. When the danger of destruction grew nearer, we were compelled to find a means of escaping from our own planetary system altogether. It was then that we learned to travel through time. But why didn't you travel backwards, back to the time before your sun began to expand? We did. Didn't that solve your problem? How would you like to live yesterday all over again? Do exactly the same things in exactly the same way? And be denied the knowledge and experience that the future alone has to offer? Yes. Yes, it could get very dull. We soon learned that the only way was forward, not back. So forward we went, across the universe, looking for a new planet, a home, a place to live, a pleasant, hospitable place, with a young sun and all the elements necessary to life. And you found it? Yes. Here. The Earth. When we arrived here, life was in its early stages, but it had been firmly established. This was the most beautiful, the most hospitable planet we had ever discovered. Warm. Friendly. So you settled here? Yes. And how'd you like it? At first, very much. But now the time has come for us to leave. To wander through the universe hoping to find another planet like Earth. But one that doesn't contain the threat of total destruction. As this does. What, you mean our sun's expanding? It's going to blow up? No. The thing that exists on the Earth now that is about to drive us away wasn't here when we first came. What is it? It must be very powerful to drive you away. It is very powerful. Something we cannot understand. Cannot fight against because we don't know how. What is it? You will know soon enough. Right now it's time for you to come outside. And meet us. Or... What is left of us? I... Don't be too surprised by what you see. How do you mean? I told you. We are very unlike you. We are not even of this Earth. Life on our own planet was different. We have 
developed in a different way. You can have no idea of how we look, but you will find out soon. Now the door will open and you may come out. Hey, no, no, wait a minute. Jet, Jet, can't he give us some idea of what he looks like first? Yes, Jet, it might be just as well. You never know. Call him. Ask him to show himself on the televiewer at least. It's too late. The door's opening. Well, why not? There's no music on. He should hear us. Hello, can you hear me? Maybe he doesn't intend to answer. He's probably afraid the sight of him will horrify us so much we won't want to go out. We want to go back. Well, he said we could if we wanted to. We don't have to do anything we're not happy about. But he can't want us to go back, or why should he bring us here in the first place? Yeah, that's what's bothering me. For all we know, the minute we step outside, we'll be pounced on and, and locked up in a cage. Why in a cage? Well, because we're different from him. We interest him. Yeah, I expect these local zoo could make a lot of money with us shut up in it, like a lot of apes. Can't you see them gathering round us and poking us with sticks? Lemmy, we don't even know if they realise what a zoo is, least of all money. Well, all right. As scientific specimens, then. What would our scientists do if they found some kind of animal they'd never seen before, Hey, Completely different. They wouldn't give it a banana and send it home, would they? They'd have it all nicely locked up in no time, and it wouldn't matter what the animal felt about it. Yeah, there's something in that, too. Well, we could at least go as far as the door, then see if we fancy going any further. And if we don't, how are we going to take off again and get back to where we came from? Yeah, Doc's right. Whatever we do, we're at the mercy of the voice and his kind. We can't sit here forever, so we might as well go out. All right. We'll go as far as the main door for a start. Right, up you go, Jet. Go on, then, Lemmy. Don't hang behind. Oh, I'm coming. No need to get at me. Ah, uh, let's see what we can see from the main door. Lance! What's that? It must be a city of some kind. The city of domes. Every one of them exactly like the dome I saw on the moon. Exactly. How can they tell one from the other? They must be houses of some kind. Yes. And it's as if the main part of them is built underground. And only the roofs, the domes, are above. Maybe they live underground, like rabbits. Can you see any sign of life, mm. any movement? No, the place seems deserted. Completely deserted. Yeah, probably keeping out of sight. Waiting to grab us when it's too late for us to get back in the ship. If they were going to be violent, they could come into the ship and do it. Oh, well, yes. Well, I suppose they could. Well, come on. Let's get down to ground level, at least. Oh, if only we had a gun or something, I'd feel a lot better. Why didn't we bring one with us? I mean, you don't need guns to explore a lifeless world. Yeah, this ain't no lifeless world. No, but the moon is, and it was the moon we set out for. Well, I'd feel much better with a gun in me hand, just the same. All done, now? Yes, Jet. Now, keep close together. We'll go over to that town or whatever it is. See just what those domes are. Well, they're solid enough. The walls are anyway. Don't seem to be any kind of doors mm. in any of them either. Well, there didn't appear to be any kind of door in the ship we just arrived in, but there was one. Beats me how they can conceal all the joints. I'd swear there was no break anywhere in this wall. Well, let's move on to the next dome, see if that's any different. No, just the same. How many is that we've looked at? Oh, a dozen at least. There are hundreds more, literally hundreds. Curious how everything is curved. Not a straight line to be seen anywhere. Well, let's keep looking. Blimey, what's that? 
Over there. See it? An animal. It must be old man mystery. Stand still. Don't move. No, I don't think it can be him, Lemmy. It's, it's a cat-like creature, but large, very large. Well, let's hope he's had his dinner. Stand still, Lemmy. Don't move. He seems very curious about us. He's not coming any closer. He's just staring at us. Yeah, probably wondering which one of us looks the fattest. Oh, blimey. He's going. Uh, he's going away. And good riddance. Uh, don't move yet. Let him get completely out of sight. Oh, look, what a time to choose to stop and have a scratch. Oh, shut up, Lemmy. He's off again. Now he's gone. Around one of the domes. Oh, boy. If he'd chosen to attack us, we wouldn't have stood a chance. It would have been easy meat for him. What kind of animal was it? Macarodontini. Eh? Uh, Macarodontini. Oh, that's what I thought it must be. A tiger, saber-toothed. Didn't you see the tusks jutting down from his upper jaw? Oh, is that what they were? Well, that about establishes what period of time we're in. That thing couldn't be in the future. And it also establishes that we're not safe out here. That we've got to get back to the ship and quick. Yes, I suppose we'd better. It'll be getting dark soon. And who knows what we might meet. Come on, then. Let's go. Which way are you going? Well, this is the way, isn't it? No, Jeff. This way. Now, wait a minute. Which was the last building we looked at? Well, the one directly behind us. No. That one there, over on the left. Wait a minute, I'm not sure. It could be any of them. There's no way of distinguishing one from another. I swear it's this way. And I'll know you're wrong. It's this way. Now, hold on a minute. We'd better face it. None of us knows which is the right way. With all these buildings identically shaped, all at equal distances from each other, it's impossible to tell which way we came. And we shouldn't have come so far, not without taking our bearings first. Fact is, we're lost. We don't know which is the way back. think we're getting anywhere near the outskirts of this place. If anything, we're going deeper into it. Well, there's no point in going on any further. We must stop and think this over. Well, how's that going to help? Look, when we came out of that ship, did any of you notice which way the sun lay? Not me. I was too concerned with what we'd find. I didn't even think of it. No, me neither. So we don't even know at which point of the compass the ship is standing in relation to this... this city. And we were fools not to notice. Wouldn't be of much use to us anyhow. The sun's about to set. Well, the stars would have guided us. We don't even know which way we want to go. Well, maybe if we climbed to the top of one of these domes, we could get high enough to see the ship before it gets too dark. And what do we use for footholds? It'd be like trying to climb a wall of glass. No, <laughs> climbing's out of the question. Then what are we going to do? Stay out here all night with those muck, uh, uh, them tigers, and never knows what walking about and licking their chops? Unless we find a way out of this maze, that's just what we'll have to do. Hello? Hello, Luna. Listen, do you hear anything? What? Listen. Yeah, it's the voice. But where's it coming from? It seems to be coming from the ground. You mean he's under there? Hello, Luna. Hello. No, it's not. It's coming from Lemmy's helmet. Aye? Lift it to ear level. Listen to it. Yeah. Hello, Luna. Can you hear me? It is him. I must have left my radio switched on or knocked it on by accident. Put your helmets on, all of you. Switch on your radios. Hello, Luna. That's better. I wonder how long he's been calling us. Hello, we can hear you. Why didn't you answer me before? We didn't have our helmets on. Our radios are in them. I see. But we've called you before. You didn't answer us. No, we were too busy watching you. Watching us? Do what? Exploring our city. Then it is a city. Yes. Does that surprise you? Many forms of life all over the universe live in communities. Yeah, now then, what's the idea of watching us? Just curiosity. and interest in you. See how you would react to what you saw. All we did was get lost. And meet a tiger... Do you know those things are hanging around? Of course. Lots of other animals, too. They often wander through our streets. What, you mean you let them? 
Why not? They do us no harm, and we certainly do them none. But one normally expects a wild animal to attack you. Attack? Yes, attack. Fly at you. Kill you, maybe. Unless you kill him first. The thought never occurred to me. Well, then, how do you protect yourself from such creatures? They never bother us, nor we them. Oh, I see. Here, Chet. They must look more horrible than we thought. Even a saber-toothed tiger's scared to go near them. Quiet, Lemmy. Remember, he can hear every word you say. Have you seen enough of the outside of our city? More than enough. We want to get back to that ship where we feel safe. You are afraid? Well, wouldn't you be in our place? I don't think so. Animals are timid, but you have no reason to be. Because unlike the animals, you can reason. Oh, I don't see that that follows at all. It's just because I can reason that I know when to be scared. You must be more primitive, more backward than we thought. Yeah, now there's no need to go getting personal. You told us yourself we were in great danger. That's how you persuaded us to come here, to get out of it. To be in danger is not necessarily to be afraid. Well, no, I, I don't suppose it is. Look, whether we're scared or not, we have no desire to remain here all night. Can you guide us back to the ship? At least we can stay there until morning. If you really wish it, I was about to guide you somewhere else. Where? <clears throat> to me. Oh, is that far? No, very close. What do you say, Mitch? Shall we go? That's why we left the ship in the first place, isn't it? We could go back there for the night, come out again in the morning. What, and spend the night on a cold metal floor without so much as a blanket between us? I take it you're all for going on then, both of you. Yes, dear. I am. All right. What do we have to do? Where do we go? You see the dome in front of you? Yes. Walk round to the other side of it, the opposite side. Just that, nothing else? No, nothing else. All right, gentlemen. Let's go. Oh, I suppose we know what we're doing. Well, can we? We've just got to trust to luck, that's all. Well, if you ask me, it's a long chance we're taking. Quiet, Lemmy. Do stop nattering. Well, it's all right for you. You don't know how I'm feeling. I said keep quiet. That's far enough. Just here? Doesn't look any different from the other side. No different at all. Just another dome. Hey, wait. Huh? Look, the wall's opening up. Good heavens. Stand back. Keep away. D Lemmy, not that far away. Come back. Don't start to run or we'll only get lost again. It's a door, an octagonal door, just like those panels in the ship. And there's a light behind it, a very strong light. Well, it's wide open now. Yes. Why don't you come in? Well, uh... <laughs> Do you prefer to spend the night outside? Uh, no, we don't, thank you. We'll come in. Come on, I'll lead. Be careful, Jet. Take a good look round first. It seems safe enough, just a passageway leading downwards deep into the ground. Where to? Well, it ain't the Bakerloo line, that's certain. Uh, it's well lit, too. At least this end is. Seems to be darker further on. Well, let's go. Let's get inside. Yes, Mitch. Uh, come on, Doc. Okay. And you, Lemmy. All right. Well, nothing's happened to us so far. Hey, listen. Well, what is it, Lemmy? Can't you hear? What? Nothing. Quiet, isn't it? Come on, let's get going. Wait a minute. Something's happening. There's that noise. What the... It's all right, Doc. It's the door. It's closing again. Oh, just as well. If that tiger saw it open, he might get ideas about coming in and spending the night with us. Let's keep going. How long is this tunnel, I wonder? What's at the end of it? We'll find out soon enough. Don't be in too much of a hurry. Say, you notice anything? What? The dark part of this passage seems to keep the same distance from us. We don't get any closer to it. Now you mention it, Mitch, we don't. How can you account for that? Did you notice anything else? What's that, Lenny? The part we've left behind us is all dark, too. There's no sign of the wall we came through. 
is going on? Shall we turn back? I don't know. Yeah, let's turn back. I don't like this. It's uncanny. No, look, you wait here. I'll turn back. What, in, into the darkness? Doc, you keep me in sight, and Mitch, you watch the other way. See if anything peculiar happens in that direction. Right, okay. Oh, here I go. Take your time, Jack. I will. You just keep your eye on me. Can you still see me? Yep. You don't sound too sure. Hey, I can see the door now. Can you see us? Yes, but there seems to be a patch of darkness between you and me. Uh, I thought there would be, eh? Well, don't you see, Lemmy? What? You mean it automatically lights up ahead of you and blacks out behind as you walk along? Yes. Jet, come on. It's all right. Let's keep going. think we're ever going to come to the end of this tunnel. Well, there must be an end to it somewhere. Well, it doesn't follow. If it's like everything else in this place, built on a circular pattern, all we'll do is end up where we started. <sighs> we can even see where we're going. With the light going out behind us and darkness always just ahead. It's, it's uncanny. Well, I'm glad you admit it. At least... hey, hey, wait. Stop a minute. What is it, Doc? See? Directly ahead. A, a pinpoint of light. A bluish light. What? Where? I can... There. Oh, yes, I can. Well, what do you suppose that is? I wish I had the faintest idea. It looks just like an eye. Eh? Well, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, now you mention it, it does. It's as though it's watching us, staring at us. Yeah, hey, doctor's a favor. You, you, yeah, that couldn't be the voice, could it? How can an eye be a voice? I mean, his eye. Only one? Why not? If he's as different from us as he says he is, maybe he's only got one. Maybe that's all he is. Just an eye. How could an eye stay up in the air like that with no support? Hello? <laughs> Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. We're in the tunnel, the air shaft, or whatever it is. Well? We've been walking down it for a long time. Of course. Now we can see a light, a, a bluish kind of light, very small and straight ahead. We don't quite know what to make of it. You must keep walking until you reach it, and then pass through it. Where do you think we are, mice? We can't get through a hole that size. You're quite a long way from it yet. It will grow as you approach it. Oh, I see. Then we'll keep going, and thank you. It's a pleasure. It's more than it is for me. All right, let's get started. If that light is really as big as he says, we have a long way to go before we reach it. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. It's a door, an opening anyway. Yeah, circular, of course. But what is it that lies on the other side? And who's going to take first look? Well, that door's big enough for all of us to take first look together. Yes, Jim. Wow! Good heavens, did you ever see it? It's all a dream, it must be. It's a nightmare, a beautiful nightmare. And it is daylight. How can it be daylight underground at night? And where's the sun? There's no sun, I grant you, but the sky's... Oh, it's not the sky. It's a roof. An enormous spherical roof. Well, this whole thing is artificial. But it looks so real. Like a genuine fertile plain viewed from the top of a high cliff. Look at those trees and, and, and things down there. They're trees like, a, well, like I never saw before. It's warm, like a pleasant spring day. It's like a huge garden. A colossal, 
beautiful garden. You know, it's a different country, a different world, an artificial world laid out under the largest dome I've ever seen. How does it keep up there with no pillars to support it? And there must be millions of tons of earth above it. The pressure must be fantastic. Oh, look at those lovely flowers. Here, Kew Gardens is just a window box compared to this. Oh, whoever built this place must have a great love of beauty. Hello, Luna. Hey, Jet, he's calling. Hello? Hello, yes. Well, how do you like our home? Is this where you live? Is this your city? What is left of it? I'd hardly call this a ruin. No, not a ruin. But a city is not alive without inhabitants. And they are all gone. Or nearly so. But why do you live underground? The climate of Earth is too violent for us to live on its surface. Ah, they can't be so tough as we thought. Well, you can't stay up there. To one side of you is a long flight of steps. That's the longest flight of stairs I've ever seen. Fall down that lot and you get a nasty bump. I'll be at the bottom. Waiting for you. Oh, blimey. Oh, come on. No point in hanging about here. Right, home. Well... We've touched bottom. What now? I suppose we'd better follow this path. It's the only one. There's one thing I'm grateful for. And what's that, Lemmy? Well, it ain't likely to be any saber-toothed tigers down here. Hey, look. Hey? What, Doc? Another sphere. Oh, a complete one this time. Not just a dome. Hello? Yes? You're getting very close to me. Now. Oh. In a few moments, we shall meet. Are you in that diving bell or whatever it is? Yes. I am. Do you want us to come in there, or, or will you come out? The door will open, but you needn't enter. You may like just to look in first. Very well. Here, I don't like this. Let's go back. No, Lemmy, stay where you are. Door's opening, all right. Can you see anybody? Anything in there? No, it's rather dark. It... Yes, I can. There, see? Oh, no! God, oh, oh, God! Oh, no! No, it can't be! Ah, let me get out of here! Let me! Ah. Come back! Come back! You have been listening to episode 10 of Journey into Space with Andrew Foles as Jet Morgan, Alfie Bass as Lemmy, Guy Kingsley Pointer as Doc, and David Williams as Mitch, and with Derek Guiler. The orchestra was conducted by Van Phillips, who also composed the music. Journey into Space was written and produced for the BBC by Charles Chilton. For a Christian sci-fi with adventure, drama, and a touch of romance, read Quantum Spacewalker, Anira's assignment. Anira Henderson was used to dealing with every kind of trauma in her job as an emergency room tech. Then, the disaster that wiped out her family, except for her brother Jarl, landed tragedy squarely on her own lap. In the midst of her grief, she is recruited to join an elite force of universe healers. Fixing radically broken things has always been her life's dream. But, this just took it to a whole new level. Read Quantum Spacewalker, and near his assignment by Grace S. Gross. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of... 
Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. Story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Dodge will. Man's a whole lot better off on a ranch than in a town. He's a whole lot lonelier, too. Then get married. Place needs a woman anyway. I got my eye on the Sutter girl, Pa. But she won't be old enough for another two, three years. You'll settle down, Will. It's your brother Prince worries me. He ain't as steady as you. Prince headstrong, that's all. Now, you go get the wagon and load it up at the store. Our stuff's all ready. I've got a little business here in the lawyer's office, and I'll join you. Okay, Pa. But keep your eyes open with that rab. I hear he's a sharper. I can handle him. You go along now. Sure, Pa. doing in town? I, I drove in with one of my boys, Rab, after supplies. <laughs> Not often you get to dodge. No, it isn't. But it's a good thing I came in this time. Why's that? Well, last night I ran into the clerk from the land office. We got to talking about this and that and one thing and another. Eh? And then he happened to mention that paper you fixed for me here, the one I signed a few weeks back. Oh, the... Transfer of title, you mean? The one that said my boys own the ranch now, that they don't have to wait till I die. What about it? You wrote it out legal, and I signed it. That's right, Aspern. And you said I'd have to wait a while before I could give it to the boys. I did. Well, now, Rab, the clerk told me I didn't have to wait any time at all. The clerk is wrong, Asper. I'm a lawyer. I know the law. Maybe so, Rab. But anyways, the clerk can read and he told me that paper I signed says that my boys don't own the ranch at all. It says you do. All right, the deed is in my name, Asper, but I don't aim to do anything about it for the moment, so uh, don't you get all upset. Uh, you cheated me, didn't you? Uh, I should have known better than to trust you, Rab. Everything's perfectly legal, Asper. Sure. Only you own my ranch. Well, I told you you can go on living there for a while. What if I, uh, went to court about it, Rab? Oh, it'd take forever, and it'd cost you a lot of money, and you couldn't win anyway. Hmm. That's just about what I figured. So you might as well just forget about it, Aspirin. I wanted the boys to own that ranch right now so they'd take a bigger interest working it. And it seems their old pa went and fuddled everything. <laughs> you got outsmarted, that's all. <laughs> I sure did. Well, Rab, I, uh, 
brought this here gun along. And I'm going to kill you with it. What? Put that gun away, Asper. You can't do that. Last man I killed was in the spring of 69. Made up my mind then I wouldn't be killing any more men. And I sure hate to do it. But I got out. Now, look here, Asper. There just ain't any other way, Rab. Like you say, it's all legal and there's nothing I can do about it. So, I got to kill you and get it over with. You're crazy. You'll hang for this. Sure I will. But I'm old and it won't matter much. And I just might learn you a lesson. No. Asper, I'll no. give you a few seconds to pray, Rab, but that's all. No, wait, 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 Asper. Listen to me. You can have the deed back. I'll fix it up right now. I don't want your ranch. Oh, that wouldn't be much use, Rab. You just go tell Marshal Dillon I forced you to sign it back, and then they wouldn't re-record No, it. I won't. I, I swear I won't. And then I just have to find you and shoot you all the same. It's just easier I do it now. No. No, no, no. Here. Here's the deed. I'll fix it right now, and you can go file it yourself. You see? Look, I'll, I'll do it now. You know I can't read. Then we'll take it over together and record it. Oh, no, the clerk can read it for you. Uh, well, all right, Ram. Go ahead, fix it. Yes, yes, yes. <clears throat> there. Uh, are you satisfied? As soon as we get it recorded, maybe I will be. Uh, come on, then. We'll do it right now. You're a pretty smart lawyer, Rab. I think this is about the last job I'll ask you to do for me. And if you didn't do this right, I'll kill you sure. Now, let's go find out. Where have you been all week, Matt? We've missed you around here. Yeah, Dodge's been peaceful enough, Kitty. According to Chester, anyway. Well, at least nobody's been shot, I know of. <laughs> They've come close to it a time or two, though. Well, arguing doesn't fill any graves. Yeah, maybe someday men will learn that. I doubt it. Huh? <laughs> you don't think very high of men, do you? Not very. After what I've seen of them. Well, maybe the trouble is you've never seen them when they were working. They aren't so bad, then. That's what they're always telling me. Matt, I'd like to go to St. Louis or somewhere for a while. I need a change. Oh? Uh, why don't you go? Oh, I don't know. Wouldn't really be any good. Alone. Mr. Dillon? Oh, yeah, Chester. Oh, hello, Miss Kitty. How are you, Chester? Say, I just come from Doc's, Mr. Dillon. You better get over there right away. Rab's been shot. What? Rab, the lawyer? Yes, sir, right in his office. Doc isn't sure how long he'll be conscious. Well, who shot him? I don't know, sir. Some men heard the shot, and they found him there all alone. Whoever it was had got out the back way. <laughs> I'll see you later, Kitty. Sure, man. Come on, Chester. Can he talk, Chester? Yes, sir. But Doc told him not to waste his strength until you got there. Ah, good. I came right away, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, sure, sure. Now, Doc. Doc, how is he? He's alive, Matt. And still conscious. I've done what I can for him. Marshal's here, Rab. Yeah. 
Feel like talking now? Yeah. Hello, Marshal. Hello, Rab. Uh, who shot you? Asper. Oh, John Asper shot me. John Asper? Yeah. What? Did you have a fight with him? He shot me in the back, Marshal. I never even saw him. Well, how do you know who it was if you didn't see him? I, I, I was sitting in my office and he shot me through the window in the back. But how do you know it was Asper? A couple of days ago, he threatened to shoot me. That's why. Oh? He said he'd kill me. Well, why did he threaten you? Well, it was about his ranch, Marshal. I made a little, little mistake and got the title transfer mixed up. But I fixed that. You can ask the clerk at the land office. Everything was made okay. Asper was right there with me. When was all this? Four days ago, Marshal. A man's crazy. That's why he shot me. He's gone crazy. No, 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 that's enough. That's enough now, Rab. You, you better not talk anymore now. Doc, what do you think? How's he look? Uh, he might pull through, Matt, but he cannot get excited. Yeah, okay. We'll go. Uh, let me know how he is, will you? Oh, sure, Matt. Sure. I'd like to talk to him again when he's able. His story doesn't make much sense so far. Mr. Dillon. Oh? He was just closing up the land office. Well, for a clerk, he works pretty late. Yes, sir. What'd he say? Well, sir, he said the same thing Rab did, only it wasn't no mistake. What? Rab didn't make any mistake. Somehow he got old Asper to sign the deed to his ranch over to him, all clear and legal. Then four days ago, they came in again and signed it back to Asper. The clerk thinks Rab fooled the old man somehow on the first one. He can't read, you know. Then maybe Asper did threaten him after all. Yes, but if everything was made okay, why would Asper shoot him? I don't know. Maybe we better ask him. We gonna ride out there tonight, Mr. Dillon? No. No. I know John Asper. He's not gonna run. Anyway, I'd like to talk to Rab again first. Yes, sir. <laughs> How are the eggs this morning, Chester? They've gone up, both in price and age. How's Rab, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, he's still alive. Couldn't talk very long, though. Did you find out anything? Oh, same story. Oh, say, I nearly forgot. Old man Asper was in here a few minutes ago. Huh? Well, where is he now? He said he'd be right back. I told him you'd like to see him. Yeah, yeah, I would. Thanks, Chester. Well, that's all right, sir. Oh, I ordered some eggs for you, too. Oh, good. Uh, and coffee. Yeah. Here's Asper now. Mm. Ah. Morning, Marshal. Hello, Asper. You, uh, wanted to see me? Yeah, yeah, I did. Won't you sit down? All right. But I can't stay long. I just rode in from Coldwater, and I 
Want to get on out the ranch before noon. No? Then you weren't in Dodge last night? No, I'd had to ride mighty fast to be in Dodge last night, Marshal. Seems as how I didn't leave cold water till after supper. Maybe I should have waited till morning, but I figured it'd be easier on my horse to travel at night in this hot weather. Yeah, yeah. Um, who did you see in Coldwater, Esper? Shanghai Pierce himself. Made a deal with him for some cows, too. When he comes up with his next herd, won't be for two, three months, though. I see. Uh, Esper, tell me something. Did you threaten to shoot that lawyer, Rab? How'd you know about that, Marshal? What, did you? Yes, I did. Why? Well, somebody shot him last night. They kill him? Oh, he's still alive. You got any idea who might have done it? Yeah. I might have. But you didn't. No, but I would have. He's a crook, Marshal. I thought I was signing the ranch over to my boys, and he put his name in instead. He changed his mind about it, though, once I got him treed. Do, uh, do your boys know about this? Nary a word. No, now they didn't do it, Marshal. Isn't uh, your younger son, Print, uh, isn't he the wild one? Well, Prince of Mike Wild, you could say. His mother didn't live long enough to have a hand raising him, that's why. But he didn't know about Rab, Marshal. He knew nothing at all. Might have found out somehow. Well, I sure don't know how. I never told him. And he ain't even been to town since this started. Neither of the boys been here? Will, he come in with me the other day, but he didn't talk to Rab. Ah, I see. Look, Marshal, I don't want any suspicions about them boys. Now, you just ride out with me and we'll clear this up once and for all. I told Rab I'd kill him, and I would have. And then I'd come down and told you all about it, and you could have got me hung. I expected that. But the boys weren't in on it. And I don't want anybody thinking they were. Now you come talk to them. All right, Esper. All right. I'll ride out with you. Sure you will. And I'll tell you about Rab. If he pulls through this time, somebody will just shoot him again. That man's no good at all, Marshal. Return for the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. But first, young women are needed to enroll as student nurses and to take their places as graduate nurses in an ever-expanding field where opportunity unlimited awaits. Older women should seek careers as practical nurses, where fine living and fine working conditions are in prospect. Ask at any hospital, at the nurse's registry desk, or at any qualified school of nursing. And now the second act of Gunsmoke. You've done a lot of work on this place since I was here, Asper. It's coming, Marshal. It's coming. I don't blame you for not wanting to be cheated out of it. Well, life's always uncertain, full of boils, Marshal. 
Never did have it easy on this ranch. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Well, I don't see the boys around. Maybe they're in the house. Come on, we'll have a look. All right. Boys! Will! Prince! That's you, Pa. Come on out, Will. We got company. Hello, Will. Marshal. Where's Prince? I want both of you here. He'll be around later, maybe. Well, go get him, Will. I got some coffee on the stove. Would you sit down for a cup, Marshal? Will! Yes, Pa. You know where Print is? No. When did you see him last? Yesterday. Morning. All right. We'll find him later. Will, Rab got shot last night, and the marshal here is looking for the man who shot him. Did you do it? No, I didn't shoot him. You're telling the truth. I ain't been off the ranch. That's the truth. Satisfied, Marshal? Yeah, I'm satisfied. Now, what about Print? Think Print might have done it, Will? Ask him. You know more than you're telling me, don't you? Yeah. Well, I'll be. Now, what do you know about me and Rab? Tell me now, Will. I know what I heard. I was curious, so I went around back and listened at the window while you and Rab was talking. I heard you... Say you went and fuddled everything, and then I left. I told Print about it, too. Then why didn't you listen some more since you were snooping around? I was going to shoot him all right, but he fixed everything up. This is your ranch now, yours and Print's. You understand? That's so. But now it looks like Print got hot-headed and rode to town. Doesn't it, Marshal? That could be. Anyway, I think we better find him. I'll find him. No son of mine's going to go around shooting people. You just said you were going to shoot that lawyer yourself, Pa. Sure I was. It wouldn't have been the first time I've killed, but that's different. You boys wasn't raised that way, and you ain't going to start now, Jim. Now, wait a minute, Asper. Wait a minute. We don't know that Prince did it. I know dang well he did now. But if he shows up, I'd like to talk to him, but I'm not going to go on a hunt for him unless... Well, unless Rab dies. Uh, you, you can find me in Dodge. I'll bring him in. If he comes back, Marshal. All right. All right. Well, so long, Will. Bye, Marshal. Ah, hello, Chester, Doc. You're about a half hour late, Max. Yes, I was just going to ride out after you, Mr. Dillon. Uh, why? What's happened? Rab got shot all over again. What? He's dead for sure now. Yeah, right in Doc's office, Mr. Dillon. We were sitting down here, me and Doc, when we heard it. But by the time we got upstairs, he'd gone. Whoever done it, and Rab was dead. Shot him right on the couch and jumped out Doc's back window. Nobody saw him that I could find. Uh, well, he sure was determined, wasn't he? Uh, Chester, go see if you can find out if... Print Asper's been in Dodge in the last couple of days. Old Asper's gentleman? Well, he's 18, Doc. Oh. Well, yes, yes, you're right. Oh, yeah, he's old now. Get going, will you, Chester? Yes, sir. Uh, and Chester, I'll be at the Texas Trail. Huh? All right, sir. Doc, 
You've known John Asper for a long time. Oh, ever since I've been in Dodge, man. Yeah, well, so have I. I just hope for his sake, Prent didn't do this. Oh, yes, Matt. Asper's a crusty old buzzard, but he's straight as a come. Yeah, sure is. Well, I'll see you later, Doc. Yeah, sure. Matt. You alone, Kitty? Sure. Sit down, Matt. Thank you. Yeah, the place looks kind of deserted tonight. Oh, thoroughly. Most of the boys haven't slept off last night yet. <laughs> uh, Kitty, tell me something. Hmm? You know Prent Asper? He's been in a couple of times. When? Oh, not for a couple of months, Matt. Yeah. Why? Uh, I'm looking for him, that's all. Is he in trouble? Yeah, I think so. Dylan? Yeah. Charlie at the stage office saw him this morning. Huh? He was the first place to stop. Was he sure? Yes, sir. He said Print walked right down the street. They wouldn't even say hello to him. Went right past him. All right, sure, sir. Matt, over there by the door. Isn't that old man Asper? Yeah, it sure is. Here he comes, Mr. Dillon. Doc told me I'd find you here, Marshal. Yeah. He's going to ride out to take care of Will. I want you to go after Print with me. Take care of Will? Well, what's happened? It was about a half hour after you left, Marshal. I was out at the barn, and then I heard Print and Will arguing, and I started for the house. But before I got there, Print pulled a gun on Will and shot him. Then he rode away again. I did what I could for Will, and then I come for the doc. Well, is Will hurt bad? I don't know, Marshal. But Doc can fix him if anyone can. Let's go now. We'll get fresh horses at the ranch. Yeah, all right, all right. Uh, just to go get our horses, huh? Yes, I taught Print everything I know about the prairie, Marshal. It's going to be a long ride. Asper was right. It was, sure enough, a long ride. We cut Print's trail just beyond the ranch and followed it west for two days. The old man tracked like an Indian. To determine how fresh the trail was, he'd spent a long time at certain places just looking at grass blades or scrutinizing the fine little marks made on bare ground by insects or calculating on the age of a doodlebug hole. He was slow, but as certain as death, and we never lost the trail once. On the fourth day, he announced that the tracks were just a few hours old, and we rode faster. About noon, we stopped behind a small hummock and walked forward to where we could see a cabin a hundred or so yards off, surrounded by high brown prairie grass. He's in there, Marshal. Are you sure? Yes. He's decided to make his stand from there. It's a good spot. It sure is. He's got a clear field all the way around. Well, let's surround him and wait it out. Oh, no, that's too slow. And I'm in a hurry to get back to Will. He's still alive. Well, I'll put a couple of shots in there. Maybe he's ready to give up. I doubt it. But go ahead. Uh, he'll never give up. Uh, all right. Let's spread out and rush him. Then. No, Marshal. That'll just mean more bloodshed. 
he'd get one of us sure. I got a better idea. Oh? We'll burn him out. What? Look at that grass. It's as dry as tinder. All we have to do is fire it and take him when he comes out. He'll come out shooting. I know. I'll be waiting. Look, Asper, uh, Chester and I will stay here and starve him out, huh? Oh, why don't you ride on back? No, and see I don't you... figure that way, Marshal. Thank you just the same. All right. Oh, the cabin's downwind. We can fire it from right here. Okay. Uh, you and I'll move out a little, Chester. And, uh, let go any time. Yes, sir. Uh, look, Asper. Uh, I'll do the shooting, huh? I can knock him down without killing him. He'd only hang. We'll all shoot, Marshal. Okay. I bunched up a handful of brown grass and lit it. And the wind did the rest. And carried the flame springing higher and higher toward the cabin. It started down from Chester, too, and from where the old man lay. It was four or five feet high when it reached the cabin, which caught fire at once and was soon burning fast. No man could live in there for long. And after a minute or two, Print ran out the door and came toward us past the flame. Throw down your gun, Print. Go caught there. <laughs> Marshal, Chester. All right. Come on, Chester. Go watch it. He may not be dead. Is he... Is he dead, Marshal? Yeah. I'm sorry, Asper, but I was afraid he'd kill one of us if I didn't get him first. I saw your shot, Marshal. You hit him in the shoulder. On purpose, I figure. I killed him. I had to. Now let's get him buried. I want to get back to Will. We buried Print near the charred ruins of the cabin and then started the long ride back to the ranch. On the way, the old man never mentioned Prince, but talked endlessly of the prairie and his long life on it. He knew the land the way a preacher knows the Bible, and he accepted it and its ways with the same mixture of faith and fear. When we finally reached the ranch, Chester and I waited outside the house while the old man went in alone. After a moment, Doc appeared on the porch smiling. And then the three of us rode back to Dodge. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was especially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with the music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Joseph Kearns, John Daner, and Sam Edwards. Harley Bear is Chester, Georgia Ellis is Kitty, and Howard McNear is Doc. 
Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week when Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Next Monday night, The Lure of the Wilderness will be your Lux Radio Theater feature attraction starring Gene Peters and Jeffrey Hunter in their original screen role. And remember, too, radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense, is heard Monday evenings on the CBS Radio Network. Looking for a book that combines the Christian faith, with a fantasy adventure? Creator's Call does just that. 18-year-old Edward has been raised with tales of distant lands where dragons and other strange beasts dwell. He dreams of one day joining the Keepers, who fight against them to keep the land safe, however, life's obstacles keep him firmly rooted in the small town of Cadestone. When 17-year-old June comes passing through, following a dream given to her by the Creator of the Universe, Edward's life is about to change. Pursued by a demon-possessed man, the two of them are forced to flee to areas where dragons and monsters are not just tales but reality. June and Edward eventually discover what the demons want from them. Is it possible to defeat this evil and save everyone from the darkness that threatens their lands? Creator's Call is a Christian fantasy novel with clear Christian messages. A book that glorifies God while taking you on an adventure. Pick up a copy of Creator's Call today. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Johnny, this is Maria. Maria? Well, isn't it kind of late at night to call? You've got to help me, Johnny. I'm being followed. You'll be... Aren't you at home? No, it's a little cafe on the waterfront. I came in here to phone... Why the devil did you have to go out? Everything was set up. If you'd stayed home, you'd have been safe. What are you trying to do? Get yourself killed? Johnny, this is no time... Where are you? What's the name of the place? It's in the Marrakesh, number 41, Rue de la Mer. No, whatever you do, don't go outside. Stay right where you are until I get there. Take your choice, Maria. It's either that or wind up on a marble slab. What do you mean? You know what I mean. You know better than anybody. Now stay there. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly... Johnny Dollar. From Special Investigator Johnny Dollar, location Algiers, North Africa, to the Home Office Transworld Fidelity Company, Hartford, Connecticut. Assignment, the Lorco Diamonds Matter. $100,000 in jewels stolen and a murder. Expense account continued.
Item 12, $2.20, taxi fare to the waterfront of the Marrakesh Cafe. There was no time to lose and no time to get help from Inspector Marcus. A half hour earlier, he'd set a trap, and he and his men were staked out around Maria's apartment house waiting. But apparently, she'd gone to the cafe before he got there. So now the whole thing had blown wide open. The Rue de la Mer was a dead-end street close to the water, deserted at this hour of night. A couple of dim street lights and a light over the door of the Marrakesh Cafe. Everything else was in darkness. There was no movement, no sign of life. Over here, Johnny. Oh, thank you. you got here. Yeah. No trouble so far. No. Huh? Except with that sailor over there. He finally passed out. Well, you're probably used to that kind of trouble. Cigarette? Yes, thank you. Now, what were you doing down here at this time of night? I, uh... Was visiting a friend. Is that the friend's car parked out at the curb? Yes. Charlie Barrett, huh? The meatpacker from Chicago who was going to give you the Lorco diamonds. Well, I figured he'd get over his mad spell. How did you know about it? He told me just before I knocked him out for the second time tonight. He said you two had a fight over a week ago. And that he told you he wasn't buying any diamonds after all. Well, it was just... For a while I thought I had you tagged again. I wondered why you hadn't canceled the order when you'd been told he wasn't going to pay for the stuff. Johnny, it was just a talk. I knew he would come around. Yeah, well, that's about the way I figured it. Another explanation. So I let you off the hook again. Why, Johnny? Why have you been trying so hard? Trying what? To find some way of involving me in this. Well, the facts just seemed to turn up. I wasn't trying to find them. It made a big difference, didn't it? Learning about Mr. Barrett. Learning what about him? That I was accepting a $20,000 gift from him. Why should it? Your life's your own. It did, though. Before that, you were... Well, seemed to be interested. Sure. You're a very beautiful woman. And that's all it was? What more did you want? All right, Johnny. Forget it. I don't blame you. Hey, tell me something. What about Barrett? Now that you've kissed and made up, is the engagement back on again? I haven't decided yet, Johnny. Ah. Well, come on. Let's get out of here. I'll take you home. Do you think it's safe? There was no sign of anybody around when I came in. Whoever it was probably got scared off. Oh, I was scared to death. When I saw the lights of the cafe, I jammed on the brakes and ran for the door. There, the car was right behind me. Get a look at the driver? No. How'd you get hold of Barrett's car? Borrow it? He gave it to me. Hmm. Not a bad night's work. It's a good car. Get in. You really play rough, don't you, Johnny? Sometimes. It depends on... Get down. Quick. Back of the car. It came from across the street. It's pitch black over there. What are you going to do? Look, Maria, you're safe as long as you're back of the car here. Well, what about you? I can't get a shot from here. I'm pinned down. I'm going to make a run for that stone curb. Try to draw a shot and see where the flash comes from. Be careful, Johnny. Oh, don't worry, kid. I'm the carefulest guy you ever saw. All right, now sit tight. Here goes. Yeah, I think I got him spotted. Let's see just how close I get to... There's somebody running away. Yeah, so do I. Oh, where the devil? Why don't they get some streetlights down here? That guy that's starting up. Yeah, I see it. They're getting away. One lucky shot, my... Ah. Give me your keys. Wait here, I'm going after him. No, no, I'm going with you. Then pile in. Hurry up, let's go. 
few blocks away, I picked up the taillights of the other car and poured on the gas to keep hanging on. We roared through the empty streets along the waterfront, then swung into the coast road and headed out of the city. The model I was driving had been built for road racing, and barring accidents, I didn't figure the car ahead had much chance of shaking me. There was a narrow, winding road following the rocky edge of the headlands, and the curves were sharp and dangerous, especially at the speed we were traveling. Finally, it happened. The car ahead roared up a steep grade and missed the curve at the top. It rolled over and over, the headlights cutting crazy patterns in the blackness as it plunged down towards the beach. I finally braked to a stop about 30 yards from the wreck. Jumped out and started toward it. And just then, the gas tank caught and burst and the car exploded into a tower of flames. I caught a glimpse of the driver pinned in the wreck. Then the fire took over and covered him. And I knew one thing was certain. He'd had it. It's dying down. Yeah. The gasoline is all burned now. What a terrible way to die. What way isn't? I guess... Johnny, could I have a cigarette, please? Yeah, sure. Here you go. Thank you. Yeah, light up, Maria. While you watch him burn. What a horrible thing to say. It's quite a relief, though, isn't it? Knowing you're safe now. Well, of course it's a relief when someone has just tried to kill you and now you know that they... That's true. But it's not what I meant. I don't think I understand you. What I meant was you're safe because now he won't be able to talk. Able to... Who won't be able? Do you mean you know who's in that car? Of course, and so do you. It's the customs property agent, Andre Jardin. Andre? Sure. Who else would have any reason to kill you, since he was the only one left after... Oh, I guess you haven't heard about it yet. Bobo's dead, too. What? Who's Bobo? Your other partner. Andre shot him in the back earlier tonight, up in the Casbah. So you're doubly safe now, Maria. They're both dead. And for everything else, you've got an explanation. With just one exception. I don't even know what you're talking oh, about. Oh, now, don't be modest. Actually, it was quite a scheme, whether you thought it up or Andre Oh, did. you are out of your mind. The idea was to make sure the diamond courier died, either on the plane or at least before he got through customs. That way, the courier's briefcase would be sent to Andre's office. Then Bobo was to help Andre fake the stick-up. But Bobo turned out to be a tough cookie. This may be true, Instead but Instead of I... sticking to plan, he decided to go for broke. When he slugged Andre, he tried to make it stick, but Andre managed to reach his gun, so he ended up in the hospital instead of the morgue. What has all this got to do with me? Then Andre got the idea of a double cross. He left the hospital, went into the cosmetic to look for Bobo. He found him, and he killed him. I still don't see His what... next step was a natural, to knock you off and keep the whole take for himself. We expected it, and we were ready for him. Inspector Marcus is staked out right now at your apartment house, waiting for Andre to show up. We didn't know you'd already gone out earlier. All of this may be true, Johnny. But why do you insist on trying to fit me into the picture? Because that's where you belong. I mentioned the fact that you'd been able to come up with an explanation every time you needed it. With just one exception. What exception? Both Andre and Bobo have tried to kill you this evening. Why? Unless you were in on this thing, what reason would they have? Well, I... I don't know. I... Of course. Why should I know? I don't know why they tried to kill me, Johnny. Oh, a good answer, Maria. And it'll probably work. Yeah, you figured that one out fast. I don't know what you no, mean. No, caution. Well. Who has the diamonds? I will, before morning. 
Johnny, why couldn't you Knock ask? it off, kid. You got the wrong guy. It won't work with me. It could. Sure, I know. You're beautiful, charming, lovely. And you're rotten. Rotten right to the core. What are you doing, Johnny? Going back to town. Well, wait for me. Goodbye, Maria. Johnny, wait. Johnny! An hour later, I was out at the air terminal in the customs property office watching Inspector Marcus open a vault. Mon Dieu, what a nuisance. Always they make these combinations so difficult. That's the general idea, Inspector. Uh, true, but still one would think... Ah, ah, ah. There we are. And now, if you are correct, Monsieur Dollar, we shall soon have our hands... There, and... that briefcase in the corner. Uh, ah, may we? Oui. It is the one. Good. Let's have a look at it. It will be necessary to force the lock. Here, right over with this. Looks like an easy one. It is merely a matter of... Voila. Ooh, beautiful, no? Yeah. Too beautiful. Mm. Tell me something, Monsieur Dollar. What made you know that André Jordine was guilty? Something Bobo said just before he died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He confessed he was the man who had slugged André. But Andre had described his assailant as tall and thin. Bobo was short with a stocky build. Andre had lied. Mm. And all this time, the diamonds were right here in this vault to which Andre, as property agent, had access. Can you think of a safer place? Hey, Inspector, what about Maria Datoria? Mm. Well, I, I, I am inclined to agree with you, Monsieur Dollar, but... Uh, well... Yeah, I know. Nothing but suspicion. Yeah, precisely. If I were to file charges and bring her to trial on such evidence as this, well, it, she would cry a little, perhaps, and look very beautiful. And, monsieur, the court would hang me, not her. Yeah, you're right. You could never make it stick. Yeah. C'est la vie. <laughs> Expense account item 13, $624.80. Hotel, meals, and incidentals in Algiers and transportation back to the States. Expense account total, $1,214.60. End of expense account. End of report. Remarks? Social item. To be circulated widely. The Countess Maria Datolia was married yesterday to C.K. Barrett, a big tycoon in the meat business. The happy couple will make their home in Chicago. All companies in that area who may be asked to underwrite insurance on the life of C.K. Barrett, don't. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Remember, there'll be a new exciting story on Johnny Dollar beginning next Monday. Next week, the Broderick matter, an exciting chase after a charming, beautiful girl. After all, who wouldn't? Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by Les Crutchfield, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. 
Heard in this week's cast were Lillian Bayef, Jack Moyles, Victor Perrin, C.K. Barrett, Lawrence Dobkin, Forrest Lewis, and Jay Novello. Musical supervision by Amerigo Marino. Be sure to join us on Monday night, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, Roy Rowan speaking. amazing interplanetary adventures of Flash Gordon. Last week, Flash Gordon narrowly escaped death when Saul, the jealous general, fired at his back and caused him to be thrown from his horse. Queen Azora would have killed Saul with her sword, but Flash nobly spared his life. That night, Mara the spy learned of the Blue Magic Army's plan to attack the Hawkmen at daybreak and escape from the palace to warn Zarkov and tell him the reason for Flash's strange behavior. Next morning, Azura gave Flash a torpedo to hurl when he got close enough to the Hawkmen. As the attack began, Mara the spy reached the entrance to the tunnel, but just as he was about to reveal the secret of Flash's failure to recognize his friend, Mara was killed by a ray from the guns of the Blue Magic Men. At that moment, Flash Gordon was sighted riding straight for the tunnel. And Dr. Zarkov, thinking he was deserting the Blue Magic Army, went out to welcome him to the ranks of the Hawkmen. When Flash reached the entrance to the tunnel, he pulled his horse to a stop and hurled the torpedo, which immediately exploded. These thrilling adventures come to you as they are pictured each Sunday in the big full-page Comic Weekly, the world's greatest pictorial supplement of humor and adventure. A full-page Comic Weekly, each page printed in full colors, is distributed everywhere as an integral part of your Hearst Sunday newspaper. Now we continue the story. With shouts and tumult, the army of blue magic men with Queen Azura at their head reached the tunnel entrance. Oh! Azura, it worked. It worked. The enemy are frozen into icicles. Of course it worked, my prince. Didn't I tell you what would happen when you threw the torpedo? You're wonderful, Azura. Why are men such fools as to try to fight against you? They don't for long. Azura... Do you know this man, frozen with his hand upraised? Do you? No. But... But what? Well, it seems as though I should know him. Here, drink this vodka. It will refresh you after your hard ride. Why do you think you should know this man, my prince? When I rode up to throw the torpedo, this man came out of the tunnel with his hand upraised, just as it is now. He may have been about to surrender. No, no, he didn't say anything about surrendering. He spoke to you? What did he say? He called... Flash Gordon. Flash, my friend. He surprised me so, I almost forgot to throw the torpedo. <laughs> Thank the gods you didn't forget. 
Why should this man call me friend? I've never seen him before. It was a trick, Flash. When he saw you carrying the torpedo, he tried to deceive you, to throw you off your guard. Well, it almost worked. You are a man of steel, my prince. What self-control you have. Ah, you are truly the man of my heart. Am I, my beautiful one? It makes me very happy to hear you say that. My prince. Hal? Your majesty. Have the prisoners carried back to my palace. Be very careful of this one. Oh, yes, your majesty. Your command shall be obeyed to the letter, your majesty. Uh, uh, Captain, see that the prisoner taken back to the palace in good condition. Why are you so particular about the man who calls me? Flash, did you ever hear of a man called Zarkov? 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 No, Azora, I've never heard of him. Who is he? That is the man who calls to you. In his own country, he is a wizard. That wall of chemical ice which protected him and his men from our combustion rays is an example of his magic skill. <laughs> I don't wonder you handle him with care. He should be a most valuable man to have around. You see my point exactly. I shall have Tal revive him when they get back to the palace. And by the way, Flash... Uh, yes, Azora? The fumes of the torpedo sometimes cause strange reactions. So if you meet this Zarkov and he insists on calling you friend... Remember, that was the last thing on his mind before the torpedo exploded. I quite understand, Azora. Good. And now, my victorious prince, shall we celebrate? Back in the palace, Tall carried out the Witch Queen's order. He strapped the frozen Zarkov to a table, then he tipped it into the rays of an electro-therapeutic revivifier. Uh, uh, take care of this one, she said. Uh, I wonder why. Has her taste changed from youth to middle age? Uh, if so, I, I must see what I can do to win her favor. Uh, oh. Ah, you are thawing out, are you? Uh, good. I'll give you a little more heat. How's that, stranger? Oh, be careful. The current's on full strength. You know what that may do? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, I, I didn't notice the, the indicator. Oh. Uh, be very careful of this one, she said. Uh, yes, Your Majesty. We'll take care of him. <laughs> uh, uh, you are coming around, are you? All right, stranger. Uh, loose the strap, slave. Uh, come on now, here. Yeah. yeah. Well, stranger, on, get on your feet. Uh, Flash Gordon. Flash, my friend. Uh, Flash Gordon is not here. Who are you? Uh, what has happened? Where am I? You are a prisoner of Azura, queen of magic. And your friend, Flash Gordon captured you. Now I know you. You... Uh, stand back. I have my sword point against your breast. One move and I'll run you through. I came to rescue Flash Gordon. Rescue him. He doesn't need to be rescued. You mean... Tell me the truth, you wizard of darkness. Has Flash turned traitor? He has drunk the queen's magic drug and has forgotten you and his sweetheart, Dale Arden. And even his own identity. Thank the gods. I was afraid the change was due to Flash himself. 
What is this drug of forgetfulness? Uh, lithium. Uh, God. General Saul? Uh, take this new slave to the kitchen until Her Majesty makes up her mind how she will dispose of him. Thank you, General Dow. Now, don't thank me. I had my way. You wouldn't be here now. March this way, slave. Wait. General Dow, uh, what has happened to Dale Arden? You will see her in the kitchen. She is alive, then? Yeah. And gone. Gone? Oh, yes, that must be the other one. Yes, he's there, too. Uh, take him away, guard. Come along, slave. Yeah, here, you. Put this machine and apparatus away. Uh, clean up this room. These are the kitchens, I presume. Yes, but see that you don't presume too much around here. Oh, a joke. <laughs> Not bad. Stop laughing. Will be no joke if you start any trouble, and we have to electrocute you. Quite so, quite so. Why is that animal carcass placed between those machines? Those machines are two electrodes. The flaming rays are roasting the carcass. Mm, very interesting, very interesting. Electrodes, eh? A much quicker process than roasting in an oven. Dr. Zarko! Dr. Zarko! Stay here! Stay Stay here, slave, while I get a set of manacles for you. Oh, Lieutenant! What's this? Oh, you're safe. Ma reached you in time, and he got there safely. Yes, Ma reached me safely, Dale. But just as we were pulling him into the tunnel... He was killed? Yes. Oh. He was hit by a ray from the Queen's soldier. Poor Ma. Then he didn't tell you about Flash. No. He was killed just as he was about to. Oh, Dr. Zarko... I've been so lonely. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Flash has turned against me. He's completely forgotten me. No. Yes. He's in love with that wicked queen of magic. No, no, Dale. Flash has been drugged. He has lost his memory. Drugged? Yes. That's just what Khan and I thought might have happened. How did you find out? A general named Tao told me. Tao? That's the queen's right-hand man. Her chief magician. He ought to know. Oh. Dr. Zarkov, we must save Flash. Yes, Dale, we must save Flash. And ourselves, too. Oh, I'm so glad you've come. Con and I both wish you were here to help us. You know so much about science and electricity. Uh, where is Con? Carl said I would see him here. Well, in getting away from the palace, Ma went out the servant's gate. Con and I went with him to see that the coast was clear. Yes, and uh, go on. We saw him slip out safely. And the next thing we knew, the guard came after us to our quarters and blamed us for his escape. How could they have linked you with Ma? Oh, they had seen us talking together. Oh. And one of the inner guards had challenged us near the gate just before Ma slipped out. I see. But what has happened to Khan? They separated us. Khan is in a cell somewhere. They bring him in here to do his work and take him away again. I shall be glad to see him. Here's that fellow Tao. Now, what is going on here? Uh, get to work, slave. What is the hurry, Tao? We have got lots of time for work. Come, come, no back talk. You'll taste the electric whip. Oh, God! See that this new prisoner learns our magic discipline. Yes, General Tall. Yes, and you. Yes, General Tall. Prepare some little cakes and fill these two flagons with uh, vodka. Her Majesty and Flash wish refreshment. Once, General Tall. Her Majesty is very particular about these solid gold flagons. See that Flash Gordon gets this large... A two-handled one, and Her Majesty, the smaller and more uh, delicately shaped one. Yes, General Tarr. Well, well, what are you standing there for? Hurry, hurry. Can't you see that dragon's eyes over there flashing? What has that got to do with Dale's task? Whenever Queen Azura wishes some vato, 
those dragon's eyes light up. You can almost judge her mood from the flash of the eyes. Wonderful. Yes, I shall tell Her Majesty you are coming. Hurry now, hurry. I'm sorry I can't stay to talk with you, Dr. Zarkov. We have so much to say to each other. That is true, Dale. But we shall have plenty of time around here to talk later. Uh, you attend to your duties. In the meantime, until they get those manacles for me, I'll have a look around the kitchen. Very well. I'll take these in to flash and Queen Azora. What kept you, girl? You think you had to make the bottle instead of just pour it? I'm sorry to be so long, Your Majesty. Come, Miss Order. This is a night of celebration and gladness. Let's not spoil it. As you say, my prince. Here, drink this vodka. Have one of these little cakes. I'm sure you'll like them. Thanks. I'll have one of the cakes. Nothing to drink with them? Well, I'll take a sip of the vodka to keep you company. Mm, my throat is hot. Give me that flagon, girl. You had a hard day of it, Azora. Ah. That tastes good. You're sure you don't care for any more, my prince? No, no more for me, thanks. Take the flag and take it away, girl. Yes, Your Majesty. Dale! Yes, Dr. Zarkov. I have it. I have the plan to save us all. You have? Oh, what is it, Dr. Zarkov? Get your tray down. There. Now, Dr. Zarkov, what is your plan? While you were gone, the guard slashed me with his electric whip. I have just thought of the way to repay him. Now I want you to knock over those dishes piled up there on that table. Then the guard will beat me. Oh, no, he won't. He has beaten others for less cause. Why won't he beat me? Because when you knock the dishes over, I will jump up on that platform and grab one of those electrodes that is being used to roast the meat and swing its flaming ray on the chief cook and the guard as they stop for you. Oh, Dr. Zarkov, if the attempt should fail... Oh, do not think about that, Dale. It must not fail. Do as I tell you. Everyone's back is turned just now. Hurry! Very well. Here goes. Yeah, Dr. Zorko, save me. Stand back from that girl, or I will bring you both to a crisp. Are the tables to be turned? Can Dr. Zarkov single-handed overcome Queen Azura's guards and rescue Dale Arden? See for yourself how he proposes to do this in big, full-color pictures in the Comic Weekly, distributed with all Hearst newspapers next Sunday. The Comic Weekly is the world's most popular supplement of humor and adventure. It is now printed in full-size pages, not tabloids. Every page of the Comic Weekly entertains like the star act in the variety show. For the big, full-page Comic Weekly is the world's greatest variety show of humor and adventure, with every act a headliner. So be sure to get the big full-page Comic Weekly with your Hearst newspaper next Sunday. Meanwhile, goodbye until next week when we'll be back with another chapter in the amazing interplanetary adventures of Flash Gordon.
Into Shadows Fire, the second book in the world of Strangers and Pilgrims. A fast-paced story of the continuing battle between light against dark and learning about the past will help fight against the shadows of the future. Over a decade has passed since the FTL ship has returned and John Vega and Nicolay Dan have once again joined the effort known now as the Union of Light to fight the newly formed Paganic Imperium. On the world of Sulia, help is needed. The Union must help save the people of the city of Galgani from being tortured and killed because of their beliefs. They must flee their city and begin an exodus across the stars. But the Empire will not let them go that easily, for they are the chosen people of the Lord of Light. But first, they must find a fleet of their own. Thermani Electric escaped with the Bathshi from the Shadow World and is now the Emperor of the Imperium. The only person he trusts, Sashiana makes her way back with the others only to question her own soul. As he remembers his own past and hearing of Sashiana's return, he is encouraged that now he can take his place in the galaxy. Look for Into Shadows Fire, pick it up at your favorite online bookstore. Good evening, I'm Damiano Pietropaolo. Welcome to Sunday Showcase. Tonight, we present the first episode of Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, a co-production with the BBC's Radio 4. Widely regarded as one of the greatest of American novels, Huckleberry Finn is also one of the most controversial. The novel has been dramatized by Canadian Marcy Can and was recorded in Toronto by Ned Chaillet of BBC's Radio 4. In this episode, Huck played by Christopher Jaco, stages his own murder and escapes down the Mississippi where he meets Jim, a runaway slave, played by Martin Roach. Together, the two men embark on a harrowing and hilarious journey down the Mississippi in pre-Civil War America. attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be banished. Persons attempting to find a plot in it will be shot by order of the author. You don't know about me. Without you have read a book by the name of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. But that ain't no matter. That book was made by Mr. Mark Twain, and he told the truth, mainly. There was things which he stretched, but I ain't never seen anybody but lied one time or another. Now, the way that book winds up is this. Tom and me found the money that the robbers hid in the cave, and it made us rich. We got $6,000 apiece, all gold. It was an awful sight of money when it was piled up. Well, Judge Thatcher, he took it and put it out at interest. And it fetched us a dollar a day apiece, all year round, more than a body could tell what to do with. The widow Douglas, she took me for her son and allowed she would civilize me. But it was rough living in the house all the time, considering how regular and decent the widow was in all her ways. So when I couldn't stand it any longer, I lit out. I got into my old rags and slept in my sugar hog's head and was free and satisfied. But Tom Sawyer, he hunted me up and said he was going to start a band of robbers and I might join if I would go back to the widow and be respectable. So I went back. 
Well then, the old thing commenced again. Only this time, there were two of them pecking at me. The old widow and her sister, Miss Watson, a tolerable slim old maid with goggles who had just come to live with her. Don't scrunch up like that. <sighs> Sit up straight and wait until my sister blesses the food. What's she have to bless it for? There's nothing the matter with it, is there? Don't be impertinent. For what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly thankful. Amen. <laughs> now then, huckleberry, beef stew, potatoes, <clears throat> peas, corn. Thank you, Miss Watson. Well, huckleberry, aren't you hungry? It's just everything on these shiny plates is so separate. Separate? I'm not sure I follow, dear. Well, when you rummage in a barrel of odds and ends and all the flavors get mixed up and the juice kind of swaps around, all the things go better. You heathenish boy, are you saying that you prefer to get your supper out of a swill barrel filled with rubbish? Yes, ma'am. It's what I'm used to. Oh, the poor lad. Poor lad, indeed. If, if you don't try to behave, Huckleberry Finn, and be grateful for your blessings, you go to the bad place. Don't mind if I do. Huckleberry. Well, it would be a change. I'm not particular. Oh, that's a most wicked thing to say, Huckleberry. I am proud to live my entire life so that I can go to the good place. Now, now, sister. Let the boy eat his supper. Miss Watson, you reckon that Tom Sawyer will go to the good place? Tom Sawyer? Not by a considerable sight. Well, I'm glad. I want him and me to be together. I never. Oh. It's the truth, Miss Watson. You're always going on at me to tell the truth. After supper, I went up to my room with a piece of candle and put it on the table. Then I sat down in my chair by the window and tried to think of something cheerful. But it weren't no use. I felt so lonesome, I almost wished I was dead. I got up my pipe for a smoke. For the house was all still as death now, and so the widow wouldn't know. I put out my light and scrambled out the window onto the shed. Then I slipped down to the ground and crawled in amongst the trees, and sure enough, there was Tom Sawyer waiting for me. along the path around the garden fence and by and by fetched up on the steep top of the hill the other side of town. We went down the hill and found Joe Harper and Ben Rogers and two or three more of the boys hidden in the old tan yard. So we unhitched a skip and pulled down the river two mile and a half to the big scar on the hillside and went ashore. Gather round now, men. Now we'll start this band of robbers and call it Tom Sawyer's gang. Everybody that wants to join has got to take an oath and write his name in blood. Fine with me, Tom. I'm for it. What kind of oath? Here it is. Every robber must stick to this band and never tell any of the secrets. If anybody harms any member of the band, whichever boy is ordered to kill that person and his family must do it. And he mustn't eat and he mustn't sleep till he has killed them and hacked a cross in their breasts, which is the sign of the band. Sounds good to me. Me too. And nobody that doesn't belong to this band can't use this sign. And if he does, he must be sued. And if he does it again, he must be killed. 
And if any member of this band tells his secrets, he must have his throat cut and then have his carcass burned up and the ashes scattered all around and his name blotted off the list with blood and never mentioned again. Oh, that's a beautiful oath, Tom. Did you make that up out of your own head? Some of it. The rest is out of pirate books and robber books. Every gang that is high tone has it. What about killing the families of the boys that tell us secrets? Well, that's an idea. I can write that in. And their families must be killed. Here's Huck Finn. He ain't got no family. What you gonna do about him? Well, ain't he got a father? Yes. He's got a father, but you can't never find him these days. He used to lay drunk with the hogs in the tan yard, but he ain't been seen in these parts for a year or more. They talked it over and they was gonna rule me out. Because they said every boy must have a family to kill. Well, I was most ready to cry. But all at once, I thought of a way. What about Miss Watson? You're welcome to kill her. Uh, she'll do. She'll do. That's all right. Huck can come in. We played robber now and then about a month, and then I resigned. All the boys did. We hadn't robbed nobody. We hadn't killed any people, but only just pretended. We used to hop out of the woods and go charging down on hog drivers and women in carts taking garden stuff to market, but we never robbed any of them. Tom Sawyer called the hogs ingots, and he called the turnips and stuff jewelry, but I couldn't see no profit in it. Three or four months run along, and it was well into the winter now. I had been to school most all the time and could spell and read and write just a little and could say the multiplication table up to six times seven is 35. The widow said I was coming along slow but sure and doing very satisfactory. She said she weren't ashamed of me. One morning I went down the front garden and clumb over the stile where you go through the high board fence. There was an inch of new snow on the ground and I seen somebody's tracks. They had come up from the quarry and stood around the stile a while. It was funny they hadn't come in after standing around, so... I stooped down to look at the tracks. I didn't notice anything at first, but next I did. There was a cross in the left boot heel made with big nails to keep off the devil. Joe Satcher! Huh? My boy, you're all out of breath! Did you come for your interest? No, sir. Is there some for me? Oh, yes. Half yearly's in last night. Over a hundred and fifty dollars. You better let me invest it along with your six thousand. Because if you take it, you'll spend it. No, sir. I don't want to spend it. I don't want it at all, nor the six thousand another. I want you to take it. I want to give it to you, the six thousand and all. What? can you mean, Huck? Well, don't ask me no questions about it, please, Judge Thatcher. You take it, won't you? Well, I'm, I'm puzzled. Is something the matter? Oh, please take it and don't ask me nothing. Oh, I think I see. Has somebody returned to town who might be troublesome? Please, Judge Thatcher. Ask me no questions, and I won't have to tell you no lies. That's fine, Huck. But you want to sell all your property to me, not give it. That's the correct idea. Sir? For a consideration. That means I have bought it of you and 
paid you for it. Here. Here's a dollar. Now, you sign this. So I signed it and left. I lit out to see Miss Watson's nigger, Jim. He had a hairball as big as your fist, which had been took out of the fourth stomach of an ox, and he used to do magic with it. There's a spirit inside of this hairball, Huck. It knows everything. Ask it what Pap's gonna do, Jim. How long's he gonna stay? I need to drop it on the floor. Like so. And then get down to it real close and listen. What's it saying, Jim? It says your old father don't know yet what he's going to do. Sometimes he spec he'll go away, and then again he spec he'll stay. The best way is to rest easy and let the old man take his own way. You know, Pap, Jim, he'll skin me alive as easy as look at me. There's two angels hovering about you, Pap Huck. One of them is white and shiny, and the other one is black. The white one gets him to go right a little while. Then the black one sails in and busts it all up. Nobody can't tell you which one going to fetch him at the last. Ask the hairball. Should I run away, Jim? Hang on now. I need to listen. You was all right, Huck. You was going to have considerable trouble in your life. And considerable joy. Sometimes you're going to get hurt and sometimes you're going to get sick. But every time, you's going to get well again. But what about Pap? Hush. There's two gals flying about you in your life. One of them's light and the other one is dark. One is rich and the other's poor. And you's going to marry the poor one first and then the rich one by and by. He wants to keep away from the water as much as you can and don't run no risk. In case it's down in the bills that you's going to get hung. Down in the bills? For Dane Hook. Right. Thanks, Jim. When I lit my candle and went up to my room that night, there sat Pat, his own self. <coughs> he was most 50, and he looked it. His hair was long and tangled and greasy and hung down. You could see his eyes shining through like he was behind vines. There weren't no color in his face where his face showed. His white. Not like another man's white. But a white to make a body's flesh crawl. A tree toad white. A fish belly white. As for his clothes, just rags, that was all. He sat there looking at me with his chair tilted back a little. I set the candle down. I noticed the window was up, so he had clumb in by the shed. He kept a looking me all over. Starchy clothes. Very. You think you're a good deal of a big bug, don't you? Maybe I ain't, maybe I ain't. Don't you give me none of your lip. You put on considerable many frills since I've been away. I'll take you down a peg before I get done with you. You're educated, too, they say. Can read and write. Who told you you might meddle with such highfalutin' foolishness, eh? The well, she told me. Well, I'll learn her how to meddle. I'll learn people to bring up a boy to put on airs over his own father. Your mother couldn't read, and she couldn't write another before she died. None of the family couldn't before they died. I can't. And here you're a-swelling yourself up like this. Let me hear you read. 
Go on, if you're so smart, read it. <clears throat> During the summer of 1780, Washington was prevented from accomplishing anything in the North by the demoralized condition of the finances and by the decline of public spirit. It was very difficult to secure recruits of supplies. The pay of the troops. It's so. You can do it. I had my doubts when you told me. Now, looky here. You stop that putting on frills. I'll lay for you, my smarty, and if I catch you about that school, I'll tan you good. First, you know, you'll get religion, too. No, I won't. You nasty Miss Watson. Ain't you a sweet-scented dandy, though? A bed and bedclothes and a looking glass and a piece of carpet on the floor. And your own father got to sleep with the hogs in the tan yard. I never see such a son. They say you're rich, eh? How's that? They lie, that's how. I've been in town two days, and I ain't heard nothing but about you being rich. I heard about it way down the river, too. That's why I come. You get me that money tomorrow. I want it. I can't got no money. It's a lie. Judge Thatcher got it. You get it. I want it. I ain't got no money. You ask Judge Thatcher, he'll tell you the same. All right, I'll ask him. Say, how much you got in your pocket? I want it. I ain't got only a dollar, and I want that. It just... don't make no difference what you want it for. You just shell it out. Next day, he was drunk, and he went to Judge Thatcher's and bully-ragged him and tried to make him give him the money. But he couldn't. The judge and the widow went to law to get the court to take me away from Pap and let one of them be my guardian. But it was a new judge that had just come, and he didn't know the old man. I appreciate what Mrs. Douglas and Judge Thatcher here have testified, but the courts mustn't interfere and separate families if they can help it. You hear that? All in all, I'd rather not take a child away from its own natural father. Case dismissed. Thank you, Your Honor. I'll learn my boy to respect me. You can depend on it. After that, Pep got to hanging around the widows too much. And she told him that if he didn't quit using around there, she would make trouble for him. Well, wasn't he mad? So he watched out one day for me in the spring and catched me and took me upriver about three miles in a skiff. I'll show the world who's the boss of Huck Finn. You see if I don't? When the widow hears of this, Pop, she's going to come get me. The widow ain't going to hear of nothing. You see that woody patch over by the Illinois shore? There's an old log hut in there where the timber is so thick you couldn't find it, not even if you lived there. We lived in that old cabin, and Papa always locked the door and put the key under his head nuts. He had a gun, which he had stole, I reckon, and we fished and hunted, and that was what we lived on. It was kind of lazy and jolly, laying off comfortable all day, smoking and fishing, and no books nor study. Two months or more run along, and my clothes got to be all rags and dirt, and I didn't see how I'd ever got to like it so well at the widow's, where you had to wash and be forever bothering over a book, and have old Miss Watson pecking at you. I didn't want to go back no more. By and by, Pop got too handy with his hickory, and I couldn't stand it. I was all over welts, 
He got to going away so much, too, and locking me in. Once he locked me in, was gone three days. It was dreadful lonesome. I made up my mind I would find some way to leave there. I found an old rusty wood saw without any handle. I greased it up and went to work. There was an old horse blanket nailed against the logs at the far end of the cabin to keep the wind from blowing through the chinks and putting the candle out. I went to work to saw a section of the big bottom log out, big enough to let me through. Hulking in that corner. Ain't doing nothing, Pap. Get down to the skiff. Fetch up the provision for a tenure hide. I want my supper, damn you. Right away, Pap. There was a 50-pound sack of cornmeal and a side of bacon, ammunition, and a four-gallon jug of whiskey beside some rope. I thought it all over and reckoned that once I'd sawed myself out, I would walk off with the gun and some fishing lines and take to the woods. I guessed I'd just tramp right across the country, mostly night times, and hunt and fish to keep alive, and get so far away that the old man nor the widow couldn't ever find me anymore. Hark! Get up here! Come in, Pat! <coughs> Call this a government? Why, just look at it, see what it's like. Here's the law, standing ready to take a man's son away from him. A man's own son, which he has had all the trouble and all the anxiety and all the expense of raising. Are you listening? I'm listening, Pat. Law takes a man worth $6,000 and upwards and jams him into an old trap of a cabin like this. They call that government. I told Judge Thatcher so to his face. Says I, for two cents, I'd leave this blame country and never come near it again. I says, look at my hat. Such a hat for me to wear. One of the wealthiest men in this town, if I could get my right. Suffer's ready, Pat. Mm. Mm. Ah. Oh, yes. There's a wonderful government. Wonderful. There was a free nigger in town from Ohio, a mulatta. Most as white as a white man. He had the whitest shirt on you ever see, too, and the shiniest hat. And what do you think? Answer me, what do you think? I don't know, Pat. They said he was a professor in a college and could talk all kinds of languages and know everything. And that ain't the worst. What do you think they said? Don't know, Pat. They said he could vote when he was at home. Well, that let me out. Thinks I, what is the country a coming to? It was election day. I was just about to go and vote myself if I weren't too drunk to get there. But when they told me there was a state in this country where they'd let that nigger vote, I drawed out. I says, I'll never vote again. After supper, Pap took the jug and said he had enough whiskey there for two drunks and one delirium tremens. That was always his word. I judged he would be blind drunk in about an hour, and then I would steal the key or saw myself out. He drank and drank and tumbled down on his blankets by and by. But luck didn't run my way. He didn't go sound asleep, but was uneasy. At last I got so sleepy I couldn't keep my eyes open. Before I knowed what I was about, I was sound asleep and the candle burning. Take him off! He's bit me on the cheek! Pap! 
It's all right, Pat. It's a snake. He's biting me on the neck. You take him off. There ain't nothing there, Pat. What's that? What's that? You hear that? Hear what, Pat? Tramp. 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 That's a dead. Tramp. 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 You're coming after me. But I won't go. Oh. Yeah. Don't touch me. Don't. Angel. Nicole. Nicole. Oh, little poor girl alone. Ain't nothing here, Pat. You. I know you. Angel of death. Come here. Angel of death. I know how to deal with you. Look, Pop, I'm only hurt. <laughs> I'll kill ya. you. You won't come for me no more. You got here. <laughs> Pretty soon he was all tired out and dropped down his back against the door and said he would rest a minute and then kill me. So he dozed off pretty soon. By and by, I clumb up the old split-bottom chair and got down the gun. I slipped the ramrod down to make sure it was loaded, and then I laid it across the turnip barrel pointed towards Pep and sat down behind it to wait for him to stir. And how slow and still time did drag along. Get off. What are you about? Huh? What are you doing with this gun? Uh, someone tried to get in, so I was laying for him. Why didn't you rust me out? Well, I, I tried to, but I couldn't budge it. Well, all right. But don't stand here palavering all day, but out with you and see if there's a fish on the line for breakfast. I'll be along in a minute. I went along up the bank with one eye out for Pap and another out for what the rising June River might fetch along. Well, all at once... Here comes a canoe. It was a drift canoe, sure enough. And I come in and paddle her ashore. Thinks I the old man will be glad when he sees this. She's worth ten dollars. But when I got to the shore, Pep wasn't in sight yet. And as I was running her into a little creek like a gully, all hung over with vines and willows, I struck another idea. I judged I'd hide her good, and then instead of taking to the woods when I run off, I'd go down the river about 50 mile and camp in one place for good and not have such a rough time tramping on foot. Huck! What are you playing at? I was pulling out the lines, Pab, and I fell in. Yeah, that's where your book learning will get you. Look, Pab, five catfish. They'll fry up something special. After breakfast, we laid off to sleep up, both of us being about wore out. About half past three, Pap locked me in and set out for town. I waited till I reckoned that he had got a good start, and I, out with my saw, and went to work on that log again. Before he was to the other side of the river, I was out of the hole. Pap in his skiff was just a speck on the water way off yonder. Well, by this time, I reckoned it wasn't enough just to escape. If I wanted my freedom, I would have to murder myself. It was all grass cleared at the canoe, so I hadn't left a track. I took the gun and went up a piece into the woods. When I see a wild pig. I took the axe and smashed in the door of the cabin. I beat it and hacked it considerable of doing it. I fetched the pig in and hacked into his throat with the axe and laid him down on the ground to bleed. Well, next I took an old sack and put a lot of big rocks in it. And I started it from the pig and dragged it to the door and threw the woods down to the river. Down it sunk, out of sight. 
You could easily see that something like a body had been dragged over the ground. I did wish Tom Sawyer was there. I knowed he would throw in the fancy touches. Well, last I pulled out some of my hair and blooded the axe good and stuck it on the backside and slung the axe in the corner. Then I took up the pig and held him to my breast with my jacket so he couldn't drip till I got a good piece below the house and then dumped him into the river. It was about dark now, so I lay down in the canoe to smoke a pipe and lay out a plan. I says to myself, they'll follow the track of that sack full of rocks to the shore and then drag the river for me. They won't ever hunt the river for anything but my dead carcass. They'll soon get tired of that and won't bother no more about me. All right, I can stop anywhere I want to. Jackson's Island's good enough for me. I know it pretty well and nobody ever comes there. I can paddle over to town nights and slink around and pick up things I want. Jackson's Island's the place. I was pretty tired. The first thing I knowed, I was asleep. When I woke up, I didn't know where I was for a minute. Then I remembered. The river looked miles and miles across. Thinks I, maybe it's Pat. Oh, I weren't expecting him. He dropped below me with the current, and by and by he comes a-swinging up shore in the easy water. He went by so close, I could have reached out the gun and touched him. Well, it was Pap, sure enough. He's sober, too, by the way he lay to his oars. I didn't lose no time. The next minute I was a-spinning downstream, soft but quick, in the shade of the bank. And how far a body can hear on the water such nights. People talking way over at the ferry landing. Oh, it's getting toward the long days and short nights about now. I reckon this ain't one of the short ones. Say it again, George. No, sorry. This ain't one of the short ones. Hey, hey, Mike, wake up. George will come up with a good one. Long days and short nights, Mike, but I reckon this ain't one of the short ones. Mike, you old man's got to laugh. Oh, let me sleep. And then sleep. I sure was. I have to remember some old woman. She's going to think that pretty funny. <laughs> Nearly three o'clock. Oh, sure hope daylight won't wait more than about a week longer. <laughs> After that, the talk got further and further away. And I couldn't make out the words anymore. I was away below the ferry now. I rose up, and there was Jackson's Island, heavy-timbered and standing up out of the middle of the river, big and dark and solid, like a steamboat without any lights. The sun was up so high when I waked, I judged it was after eight o'clock. I laid there in the grass in the cool shade, thinking about things and feeling rested and rather comfortable. I hopped up and went and looked out at a hole in the leaves. And I see a bunch of smoke laying on the water a long ways up, out abreast of the ferry. And there was the ferryboat full of people floating along down. I knowed what was the matter now. You see, they was firing cannon over the water, trying to make my carcass come to the top. By and by, the ferry come along, and she drifted so close that they could have run a plank out and walked ashore. Most everybody was on the boat. 
Pap and Judge Thatcher and Joe Harper and Tom Sawyer and his old Aunt Polly and the Widow Douglas and Miss Watson and plenty more. Everyone was talking about the murder. They was all crowded up and leaning over the rails, nearly in my face, watching with all their might. And the captain pointed straight to where I was standing. Look sharp now. The current sets in the closest here, and maybe he's washed ashore and got tangled amongst the brush at the water's edge. I hope so, anyway. I didn't hope so. I could see them first rate, but they couldn't see me. Stand away! That blast made me deep with the noise and pretty near blind with the smoke. I judged I was gone. If they'd have had some bullets in, I reckon they'd have got the corpse they was after. Well, I see I weren't hurt, thanks to goodness. The boat floated on and went out of sight around the shoulder of the island. I knowed I was all right now. When it was dark, I sat by my campfire, smoking and feeling pretty satisfied. But by and by, I got sort of lonesome. So I went and sat on the bank and listened to the currents washing along. And counted the stars and drift logs and rafts that came down. There ain't no better way to put in the time when you are lonesome. You can't stay so. Soon get over it. And so for three days and nights, no difference, just the same thing. The fourth day, I went exploring around down through the island. I clipped along, and all of a sudden, I bound right onto the ashes of a campfire that was still smoking. My heart jumps amongst my lungs. I never waited for it to look further, but uncocked my gun and went sneaking back on my tiptoes as fast as ever I could. If I see a stump, I took it for a man. If I trod on a stick and broke it, it made me feel like a person had cut one of my breaths in two. And I only got half. And the short half, too. When I got to camp, I didn't sleep much. Every time I waked, I thought somebody had me by the neck. By and by, I says to myself, I can't live this way. I'm going to find out who it is that's here on the island with me. I'll find it out or bust. Well, I felt better right off. So I took my gun and slipped off towards where I had run across that campfire. By and by, sure enough, I catched a glimpse of fire away through the trees. I went for it, cautious and slow. There laid a man on the ground. It most gave me the fantods. He had a blanket around his head, and his head was nearly in the fire. I sat there behind a clump of bushes and about six foot of him and kept my eyes on him steady. It was getting gray daylight now. Pretty soon he gapped and stretched himself and hove off the blankets, and it was Miss Watson's Jim. <laughs> I bet I was glad to see him. Hello, Jim. Don't hurt me. Don't. I ain't never done no harm to no ghost. I always liked that people and done all I could for them. You go and get in the river again where you belong, and don't do nothing old Jim. I always was your friend. Jim, I'm not dead. Am I ever glad to see you, Jim? I was getting lonesome, but I ain't lonesome now. Huck? I faked the whole thing, Jim. And I know it worked because I saw them dragging the river for me. I know you won't tell anyone, Jim. How long you been on the island? I come tonight out of you was killed. How'd you come to be here, Jim? Maybe I better not tell. Why? Well, to his reasons. But you wouldn't tell on me if I was to tell you, would you, Huck? Blamed if I would. Well, I believe you, Huck. I... I'll run off. Jim! But mind you now, you said you wouldn't tell, Huck. Well, I did. 
I said I wouldn't, and I'll stick to it, honest engine, I will. People would call me a low-down abolitionist and despise me for keeping mum. That don't make no difference. I ain't a-going back there anyway. So now, let's know all about it. Well, you see, old missus, that's Miss Watson. She pecks on me all the time and treats me pretty rough. But she always said she wouldn't sell me down to Orleans. But I noticed there was a nigger trade around the place considerable lately. And I begin to get uneasy. But one night, I creeps to the dog pretty late. And I hear old missus tell the widow she gonna sell me down to Orleans. And she didn't want to, but she could get $800 for me. And it's such a big stack of money, she couldn't resist. The widow, she tried to get Miss Watson to say she wouldn't do it. But I never waited to hear the rest. I lit out mighty quick, I tell you. Some young birds come along, flying a yard or two at a time and lighting. Jim said it was a sign it was going to rain. Jim knowed all kinds of signs. He said he knowed most everything. If you gets hairy arms and a hairy breast, it's a sign that you's going to be rich. You got hairy arms and a hairy breast, Jim? What's the use to ask that question? Don't you see I has? Well, are you rich? No, but I've been rich once, and I'm going to be rich again. Once, I had $14, but I took to speculating and got busted out. What'd you speculate in, Jim? Well, first I tackled stock. What kind of stock? Why, livestock. I put $10 in a cow. The cow up and died on my hands. So you lost the $10? No, I didn't lose it all. I only lost about nine of it. I sold a hide and tallow for a dollar and ten cents. Well, it's all right anyways, Jim. Long as you're going to be rich again sometime or other. Yes, and I was rich now, come to look at it. I owns myself, and I was with $800. I wish I had the money. I wouldn't want no more. We tramped and clumb up a tolerable long, steep hill, about 40 foot high, and by and by I found a good big cavern in the rock. You know what we should do, Hook? We should hide the canoe and all the traps up here. There's a good flat floor to build a fire. So we built a fire there and cooked dinner. Pretty soon it darkened up and begun to thunder and lighten it. So the birds was right about it. Jim, this is nice. I wouldn't want to be nowhere else but here. Pass me along another hunk of fish and some hot cornbread. Well, you wouldn't have been here if it hadn't have been for Jim. You'd have been down there in the woods without any dinner and getting most down to two. Oh, me, Jim. That you would, honey. Chickens knows when it's going to rain, and so do the birds, child. The river went on raising and raising for ten or twelve days, till at last it was over the banks. Many times we'd paddle all over the island in the canoe. It was mighty cool and shady in the deep woods. One night we catched a little section of a lumber raft. That's pine planks. It was twelve foot wide and about fifteen or sixteen foot long, and the top stood above water six or seven inches. A solid level floor. Another night, just after daylight, here comes a frame house down on the west side. She was a two-story and tilted over considerable. We paddled out and got aboard, plumb in at an upstairs window. There's a bed, table, two old chairs. Look, over there on the floor. Looks like a man, Jim. Hello, you... Hello? Time to wake up, sir. The man ain't asleep, Huck. You hold still. I'll go and see. Is he dead, Jim? 
Yes, indeedy. Naked, too. He's been shot in the back. I reckon he'd been dead two or three days. Don't look at his face, Huck. It's too gashly. I didn't look at him at all. Jim throwed some old rags over him, but he needn't done it. I didn't want to see him. There were heaps of old greasy cards scattered around over the floor, and old whiskey bottles, and a couple of masks made of black cloth. There were two old dirty calico dresses and a sunbonnet and some women's underclothing, too. We put the lot into the canoe. Take it all around, we made a good haul. We got home all safe. Next morning, I reckon I would slip over the river and find out what was going on. Jim liked that notion, but he said I must go in the dark and look sharp. Then he studied it over and said, Couldn't I put on the old calico gown and sunbonnet and dress up like a girl? That was a good notion, too. I turned up my trouser legs to my knees and got into the gown. Jim hitched it behind with the hooks. It was a fair fit. I started up the Illinois shore in the canoe just after dark. There was a light burning in a little shanty that hadn't been lived in for a long time. And I wondered who had took up quarters there. I slipped up and peeped in at the window. There was a woman about 40-year-old in there knitting by a candle that was on a pine table. She was a stranger. Well, you couldn't start a face in that town that I didn't know. Come in. Take a chair. Now, what might your name be? Sarah Williams. Whereabouts do you live? In this neighborhood? No, in Hookerville, seven mile below. My mother's down sick and out of money and everything. And I come to tell my Uncle Abner Moore. He lives at the upper end of the town, she says. Oh, it's a considerable ways to the upper end of the town. My husband will be in by and by. He'll take you there. Then she got to talking. And by and by, she dropped on to Pap and the murder. She told about me and Tom Sawyer finding the $6,000. Only she got it ten. And all about Pap and what a hard lot he was. What a hard lot I was. And at last she got down to where I was murdered. Who done it, Mom? We've heard considerable about these goings-on down in Hookerville. But we don't know who twas that killed Huck Finn. Some thinks old Finn done it himself. No. Is that so? Almost everybody thought it at first. He'll never know how nigh he come to getting lynched. But before night, they changed around, and they judged it was done by a runaway nigger named Jim. Why, he... The nigger <gasps> run off the very night Huck Finn was killed. Ah! So there's a reward out for him, $300. <gasps> Some folks think the nigger ain't far from here. Is that so? A few days ago, I was talking with the old couple that lives next door in the log shanty. Mm -hmm. And they said hardly anybody ever goes to that island over yonder that they call Jackson's Island. Now, I was pretty near certain I'd seen smoke over there about the head of the island a day or two before that. Mm. Like as not, that nigger's hiding over there. Three hundred dollars is the power of money. Is your husband going over there tonight? Oh, yes. He went uptown to get a boat and see if he could borrow a gun. He and another man. They'll go over after midnight. I'd better go now, Mom. Oh, just a minute, dear. Just a minute. You see that hole in the corner over there? Yes, ma'am. Can you see a rat peering out of that hole? Yes, ma'am. Will you be a good girl and see if you can hit that rat with this here bar of lead? 
I wrenched my arm the other day. Those rats know I can't hit straight. They haven't given me any peace. Well, I, I'll try, Ma. Oh, hey, here he comes. You try to hit him now. That's mighty good. That's well here. Well, thank you. What'd you say your name was, honey? Uh, Mary Williams. I thought you said it was Sarah when you first come in. Yes, ma'am, I did. Sarah Mary Williams. Sarah's my first name. Some call me Sarah, some call me Mary. Now tell me, what's your real name? Is it Bill or Tom or Bob or what is it? Please don't make fun of a poor girl like me, ma'am. Nah, 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 I ain't gonna tell on you. You're a runaway apprentice, that's all. You've been treated bad and you made up your mind to cut. Tell me all about it now. <clears throat> well, ma'am, my father and mother's dead. And the law bound me out to a mean old farmer in the country 30 mile back from the river. He treated me so bad I couldn't stand it no longer. So I stole some of his daughter's old clothes and cleared out. Say, when a cow's laying down, which end gets up first? Answer up prompt now. Which end gets up first? Uh, the, the, the hind end, huh? Which side of a tree does the most moss grow on? North side. If 15 cows is browsing on a hillside, how many of them eats with their heads pointed in the same direction? The whole 15, Mom. <laughs> well, I, I reckon you have lived in the country. What's your real name now? George Peters, Mom. Yeah, well, try to remember it, George. Don't forget and tell me it's Alexander before you go. No, Mom. And if you want to wear that old calico, when you throw it a rat or anything, you hitch yourself up your tiptoe. You fetch your hand up over your head as awkward as you can, and you miss your rat by about six or seven foot. Yes, Mom. Now, trot along to your uncle, Sarah, Mary Williams, George Alexander Peters. And if you get into trouble, you send word to Mrs. Judith Loftus, which is me. And I'll do what I can to get you out of it. I went up the back about 50 yards and then doubled back on my tracks to where my canoe was, a good piece below the house. I went upstream far enough to make the head of the island, and then I started across. sound come faint over the water, a clear, a leaven. When I struck the head of the island, I shoved right into the timber where my old camp used to be and started a good fire there on a high and dry spot. Then I jumped in the canoe and dug out for our place, a mile and a half below, as far as I could go. Tim! Tim, get up and hug yourself, Tim! Look. There ain't a moment to lose. They're after us. When the first streak of day begun to show, we tied up to a towhead in a big bend on the Illinois side and covered up the raft with cottonwood branches. We laid there all day. Know something, Jim? When the men got to the island, I expect they found the campfire I built and just watched it all night waiting for you to come. Lucky for us, that woman you met didn't come to the island. She was too smart to sit down and watch a campfire. Think so, Jim? From what you told, she's smart enough to go and fetch a dog. Why couldn't she tell her husband to fetch a dog? I bet she did think of it, Huck. They must have gone uptown to get a dog, so they lost all that time, else we wouldn't be here on a towhead 16 or 17 miles below the village. No, indeedy. We would be in that same old town again. Hmm. Well... I don't care what the reason was they didn't get us, just as long as they did. What are you doing with those planks, Jim? What does it look like I'm doing? Building us a wigwam. 
This will keep us snug and blazing weather and rainy. I'll put down a floor so we can have a fire without being seen. The second night we run between seven and eight hours, with a current that was making over four mile an hour. We catched fish and talked. We took a swim now and then to keep off sleepiness. It was kind of solemn, drifting down the big still river, laying on our backs looking up at the stars. We didn't ever feel like talking loud. It weren't often that we laughed. Only a little kind of low chuckle. We had mighty good weather. Nothing ever happened to us at all. That night, nor the next, nor the next. Huck, look. It's like the whole world's lit up, Jim. Must be St. Louis. In St. Petersburg, they used to say there was maybe 20 or 30,000 people in St. Louis. Show looks likely. It's mighty quiet. He's asleep, Huck. Every last one of them. Every night now, I used to slip ashore at some little village and buy 10 or 15 cents worth of meal or bacon. Take it all around. It lived pretty high. See what I mean about this wigwam, Huck, honey? I see, Jim. We're as snug as a bug in a rug. That's it. We let this old raft just float on down. Oh, Jim, looky yonder. Steamboat. She's killed herself on that rock. Let's land on her, Jim. I don't want to go fool along with no wreck. Like as not, there's a watchman on that wreck. Watchman, your grandmother. You think anybody's going to risk his life on a night like this? We's doing blame well, Huck. We better let blame well alone, as the good book says. Might borrow something worth having. Out of the captain's stateroom? Cigars, I bet you. And cost five cents a piece, solid cash. Steamboat Captains is always rich and gets sixty dollars a month. Stick a candle in your pocket, Jim, till we give her a rummaging. Let's quit while we's ahead, Huck. You reckon Tom Sawyer would ever go by this thing? Not for a pie, he wouldn't. He'd call it an adventure. That's what he'd call it. And he'd land on that wreck if it was his last act. Why, you'd think it was Christopher Columbus discovering Kingdom Come. I wish Tom Sawyer was here. Come on, then. But don't let's talk more than we can help. The deck was high out here. We went sneaking down the slope of it to layboard in the dark towards the Texas deck, feeling our way slow with our feet and spreading our hands out to fend off any guy ropes, for it was so dark we couldn't see no sign of them. Pretty soon we struck the forward end of the skylight and clung onto it. The next step fetched us in front of the captain's door, which was open. And by Jiminy, way down through the Texas hall... We see a light. Oh, oh, please, don't, boys. I swear, I won't ever tell. It's a lie, Jim Turner. You've acted this way before. You always want more than your share of the truck. And you always got it, too, because it's horrible, you didn't you tell. But this time, you said it just one time too many. You're the meanest, treacherousest town in this country. Hear that, Jim? I'm feeling powerful sick, Huck. I was going back to the raft. All right, Jim. Jim headed back for the raft. I was just a bilin' with curiosity. I says to myself, Tom Sawyer wouldn't back out now, so I won't either. So I dropped on my hands and knees in the little passage and crept forward in the dark. There was a man stretched on the floor, tied hand and foot, and two men standing over him. And one of them had a dim lantern in his hand, and the other one had a pistol. 
This one kept pointing the pistol at the man's head on the floor. I'd like to, and I ordered to, a mean skunk. Oh, please don't, Bill. I ain't ever gonna tell. Hear him big? <laughs> and yet if we hadn't got the best of him and tied him, he'd have killed us both. No, no. But I lay you ain't gonna threaten nobody anymore, Jim Turner. Put up that pistol, Bill. I don't want to, Jake Packard. I'm for killing. But I don't want him killed. And I've got my reason. Oh, bless your hearts for them words, Jake Packard. I'll never forget you. As long as I live. Packard hung up his lantern on a nail and started towards where I was and motioned Bill to come. I crawfished as fast as I could, but the boat slanted so I couldn't make very good time. So I crawled into a stateroom on the upper side. When Packard got to my stateroom, he called Bill in after him. I was in the upper berth, cornered and sorry I come. I'm for putting him out of his troubles, Jake. Oh, so am I, Bill. Shooting's good, but there's quieter ways if the thing's got to be done. We'll rustle around, gather up whatever pickings we've overlooked in the staterooms, and shove for sure. What about Jim Turner? He stays here. Ain't gonna be more than two hours before this wreck breaks up and washes off down the river. See? Turner will be drowned and won't have nobody to blame for it but his own self. But suppose she don't break up and wash off. Oh, we can wait two hours and see, can't we? If she don't, we can reboard and finish them off ourselves. <laughs> now that's more like it. <laughs> so they left and I lit out, all in a cold sweat and scrambled for the deck. It was dark as pitch there. Jim. Right there, Jim. Oh, you wish we could be here. Quick, Jim, no time for moaning. There's a gang of murderers in yonder. We don't hunt up their boats and set her drifting down the river so these fellas can't get away from the wreck. There's one of them going to be in a bad fix. But we can put them all in a bad fix for the sheriff will get them. Quick, I'll hunt the labored side, you hunt the starboard side. You start at the raft and I'll go oh, get... loaded, loaded raft? There ain't no raft no more. She done broke loose and gone. And that gang of murderers is in there. And here we is. You've just heard episode one of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, adapted for radio by Marcy Can. In the cast, Huckleberry Finn was played by Christopher Jaco, Jim was Martin Roach, Mark Twain and Ferry Captain were played by Mark Cavan. Miss Watson was Kay Hawtrey, and the widow Douglas was Elva May Hoover. Also heard were Les Carlson as Pat Finn, Sandy Webster as Judge Thatcher, Peter Oldring as Tom Sawyer, and Nikki Guadagni as Mrs. Loftus. Others in the cast include Sean Matheson, Herbie Barnes, Wayne Ward, Glenn Bang, Roy Lewis, Jack Nicholson, Pierre Bro, and Sam Malkin. The music was composed by John Roby, who also played the banjo. Script editor was Dave Carley. The casting director was Julia Tate. Recording engineer was Greg DeClute, with sound effects by Wayne Richards. Associate producers are Michelle Parise for CBC and Eugene Murphy for the BBC. Toronto producers were Greg DeClute and Linda Grierson. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn was directed in Toronto by BBC director Ned Chaillet. Executive producer for Canada was Damiano Pietropaolo. For Sunday Showcase, I'm Damiano Pietropaolo. Stay with us now for Katie Malik and Jazz Beat on CBC Radio 1. Good night.
Thank you for listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's shows. Visit our website at www.strangerspilgrims.com.